Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, today is Wednesday, January 21st, Tuesday, not Wednesday, it's Tuesday, January 21st, 2020, starting at 8.22 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. And I'm not sure what episode of the show this is, but we're going to be talking about the astrological forecast for February of 2020. Uh, joining me today are astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic. Hey, guys. Hey. hey. We are back again for the first time. It's been uh, two months since we met up last and recorded a bunch of episodes that have been slowly releasing since then, but this is the first time that I've talked to you guys in a while, and it feels like it's been kind of a gap because usually we don't go more than like a month. A month is usually like a long time between talking to each other, but now it's been two months. Yeah, it was uh, It was a decade ago, or it was within the last <laughs> decade. Yeah. we were So much has yeah. changed. We were younger then. We were much more optimistic. Uh, the world has gotten darker since <laughs> since then. We've gone through some eclipses, some Saturn Pluto conjunctions, and things like that. Yeah, uh, back back when Jupiter was still in Sagittarius. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that. I was before. thinking about that today when I was at the grocery store. I'm like, well, I was in Whole Foods, and I was remembering how much snacks I bought when we were. In <laughs> we're st- we're still working on the snacks uh, that you left behind from your Denver trip, Kelly. And I really have to up. I was put to shame by uh, your snack game was so strong that I was I was caught off guard. And I need to work on that before our next meeting. That's okay. I just realized, oh, that's what's changed because today I was very muted at Whole Foods. I'm like, that was when Venus and Jupiter were in Sag still. So yeah, okay. it's, it does feel like a whole new astrological space out there uh, since, you know, because Jupiter has changed signs since we last spoke. Yeah, Jupiter mm-hmm. changed signs. Everything's in Capricorn now. And that is only going to get worse or that's going to increase in February. Uh, when Mars moves in there, but we will get there in due time. Uh, yes. All right. So for those that are finding this show for the first time, in the first hour, we're going to go over the astrological forecast for February. We're going to do a little bit of a review of the past month or so first at the start of the show before we get into the forecast. And then after the first hour, once we finish with the forecast, we're going to do some random discussion topics astrologically related for the second half of the show. So with that being said, let's jump right into well, first, just what's been going on. So we've alluded to it. There's been a lot of astrology. We just finally got out of eclipse season, which seemed like it wasn't going to end for a long time, but it finally has. And we went through the Capricorn Cancer eclipses. And those weren't the final two in those signs, but we're getting towards like the beginning of the end in those signs, right? Yeah, well, the nodes, um, the nodes, which are the eclipse indicators, move in May. And we do have one more total eclipse, which is a solar in Cancer. And then we have like a, eh, I guess it's an eclipse uh, in Capricorn um, over the basically end of spring, beginning of summer between Q2 and 3. But we also have a eh, kind of an eclipse in uh, Sagittarius. So our next set will be solidly between cycles. This was the last full installment that was just on the Cancer Capricorn axis. Yeah, and here is for the people watching the video version, the Capricorn eclipse in late December at like four-ish degrees of Capricorn. Uh, that was the la- that was the last solar eclipse in Capricorn. So at least that's yeah the last of that one. And then just a couple weeks later, we had that lunar eclipse in Cancer around the. 
10th of January, around 20, 19, 20 degrees of Cancer. Yes. Uh, and that's the one we'll get one more of because we'll get one more solar eclipse in Cancer in six months. We will. And as Austin was saying, the nodes will have shifted signs. So it will have a slightly different tone or tenor to it because it'll be a solar eclipse in Cancer, but the nodes will now be in Gemini and Sag when we have that. It's right on the solstice, I think. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's just hours like, into the next season. Yeah. Brilliant. So that'll that'll uh, show up for, for quarterly charts for people doing mundane. Mundane. Oh, yeah. That reminds me. I had the last episode that I released because uh, I tried to, when you guys were here in November, I, I tried to talk you into us doing like a light series of maybe some like <laughs> horoscopes for the year ahead for all 12 signs. And I think- But we uh, knew better. Yeah. wonder both of you- <laughs> wisely was like that's a terrible idea and there's no way that we're gonna get through this week just in terms of energy expenditure if we attempt to do everything we plan to do plus we attempt to record 12 horoscopes which i thought would be just like a light you know affair but i'm i've learned some things i'm a different person after <laughs> you're wiser now <laughs> yeah well or more aware of like how unwise that was as a plan because i ended up recording each of them, 12 of them between an hour and some of them were like an hour and a half. So each rising sign got a really good treatment. So I want everybody listening to go and listen to those because otherwise my work will have been in vain. Uh, but it was actually a really good and really detailed forecast for all 12 rising signs. And you should look at it from the perspective of your ascendant or rising sign because then it's like a transit forecast uh, where I go through what houses each of the major outer planet transits are going to be going through this year. Uh, but yeah, good call. Not not falling for that and letting me talk you into that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, anytime. I mean, there's always next year. So next year, I know we'll that's see what I can I can see the wheels turning in your brain right now. 2021, we'll see what happens. All right. So eclipses, eclipses was not the only thing that happened. The other major thing that happened was we had the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn, and the world was getting really tense. It seemed like in that span between like the eclipse, the solar eclipse in Capricorn, and then the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, uh, things got kind of kind of serious. Things got kind of real during that like week or two period in late December, early January. Yeah, that's when uh, I you know I remember I really agonized in my write up uh, of twenty twenty. Uh, over like how to talk about configurations that I knew were hard because I wanted to be honest, um, but I didn't want to rub it in people's face, you know. Um, and I was like, oh, I can't, I can't in good conscience sugarcoat, but I, I will try not to be cruel. How, and how then, do you think, deal with that, by the way? Because I've been really struggling with that because some of the responses to some of the horoscopes were because some of them it was like kind of tough because we we're talking about like eclipses falling in difficult houses or the Capricorn pile up falling in difficult houses. And sometimes you that brings up like topics that people would rather not think about or have to deal with. But as an astrologer, like you can't really just not say that or or I guess some some astrologers do. They just omit that part. But how do you guys deal with that? How do well, you I just predict the future you... without bumming people out? Well, uh, um to sort of misquote Donna Haraway, um, you stay with the trouble. Um, you just 
struggle with it. Um, I, I don't have a formula. Um, and you know, um, well, you're a yeah, little you bit like less it. averse to bumming people out. I feel like than most astrologers on average. Yeah. Well, and that's part of, um, but that, and that's a responsibility. Um, a lot of the people that read my stuff, uh, assume that I'm not going to sugarcoat things for them. Um, right. you know, I, which doesn't mean that I don't struggle and think about what to say and how to say it. But, um, just one thing real quick, what I was leading towards is I was like, okay, well, you know, I decided not to sugar. I, I, there was some sugar I was maybe going to sprinkle on it that I thought was dishonest. Um, but then I think by January 2nd, World War III was trending on Twitter. Yeah. I was like, I'm glad I didn't sugarcoat. Like this is people were like, yeah, that's kind of what you said. I didn't say here comes World War III, but like this is going to be gnarly and people are going to be upset. Um, and that was like, okay, um, the year showing its cards immediately. But I'm sorry, Kelly, what how do you deal with like what to say, what not to say, how to say it? Do you have wisdom for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have wisdom, but I can try and share what I do, which is I do try to stick with the I try to be honest as much as I can. You know, Saturn is associated with X, Y, and Z or Pluto. Uh, you know, so things like this, I, I will sometimes say to clients, like this could be a heavier time or you might struggle with X, Y, or Z. And because most of my work with clients is individually oriented, so we've got the individual's birth chart. I'll try to be specific. Like there looks like there's some difficulties about uh, to do with money or to do with a friendship, or this could be a heavier time in your relationship where you're grappling with, you know, the foundation or the the heart of, you know, why you're together type of thing. So I'll try to make it more about a, one specific topic or area. Cause as we know, you know, the Capricorn stuff is in one part of the chart uh, and so it's not as though the whole life is crap, but there might be a part, and I don't know that I would say crap to a client, but maybe I would. Actually, some clients that I know really well and we've got a level of honesty, I'd be like, yeah, can't lie to you. I, and sometimes I'll say, I can't even spin this one. This is just going to be a heavier time to do with, you know, maybe it's their health or something. And most clients' response to that, that honesty, when you're talking about something that looks like a bit of a tough cycle is, uh, you know, we might say this, you, you might have trouble finding stability or getting clear answers, or you might feel overworked or overburdened. You know, there's some great vocab you can use to be a bit more explicit than just this is hard or heavy. Uh, but most clients really appreciate that because they would rather have a heads up so that they can be prepared, if you like. Okay. Very nice. So just a careful realism, but you're not trying to go overboard or anything like that. Yeah, and I guess that's something that does come too from having done so many sessions with so many people over so many years is that people live through these things. You know, right. I know it's not it's not going to be the end of your life that this Saturn Pluto conjunction happens. It might be hard to do with friends or it might trigger an underlying mental health issue depending on what it's activating in your chart. Um and then, you know, brainstorming strategies about managing that is, is normally how I'd approach it. Yeah, and and for people yeah, that definitely. are going through difficult transits, sometimes that's like reassuring when you do mention that and you are somewhat clear about addressing it. That can sometimes help them to find a greater sense of like meaning and purpose as they're already struggling with some of those things. So you're not necessarily always telling them something they don't know, uh, per se. 
Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said for like, yeah, things are like, this is difficult territory. You're not just slow. It's that you're walking through mud. Yeah. Right. Like acknowledging the mud makes the person feel like maybe they're not so bad at walking. That's actually perfect, Austin, because that's exactly it. Otherwise, people feel like maybe I'm doing career wrong or I'm doing relationships wrong because it's such a struggle for me right now. It's like, well, no, you're not doing anything wrong. You're just dealing with a really meaty, intense scenario. So that that contextual framework is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Well, and with it's 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 also it's different to do something like you were doing, Chris, with um, with horoscopes or writing a piece about the year. Um, and cause that's, that's one audience or listener who is many, that is a large and composite being. Um, I find it much easier to read for an individual person. Mm -hmm. Um, especially kind of once we have a sense of each other, because then we can just kind of talk about it. Um, whereas like, you know, that there are going to be people who have very different personalities and have very different situations. Like when you read it, when you're describing what's going on for all of the Aries risings or, um, you know, or when I'm writing about the year as a whole and its configurations, uh, they're different. They're all different problems. Yeah. I mean, that being said, it has been, it's really nice to be able to tie the mundane astrology into almost a quasi birth chart by looking at it relative to the rising signs. And I feel like I have a much better grasp of this overall year after having done that and how some of this stuff is going to really uh, affect some people's lives. Yeah. It's such well, a great I, I tool. Think, yeah. It's like, I mean, you're literally going over the same situation from 12 different angles and it's such good practice. Um, and uh, if and when you uh, look at clients' charts, you'll remember all of the work that you did for like Aries rising. You'll be like, oh, well, this is Aries rising, and they've got this there, so it's a little bit different, but you'll see some of the, you know, what might be just sun sign or rising sign. One sign from the perspective of one sign stuff um, turning up in a shockingly literal manner in individual charts. Yeah. I like Kelly, that. That's I'm nice. Sure. It's like a preparatory then, like doing general forecasts as preparatory for a client uh, consultation in some ways. I've always found that. Even when I was writing, I think there was about 12 years where I wrote quite detailed annual forecasts, and I felt like I was almost doing the groundwork for all the year-ahead consults that I would do. And as you said, Austin, you just nuance them uh, to each individual chart, but you've got the heart of it. You've got the meat of it um, just from doing the year ahead uh, rising sign yeah, well, version. Yeah, you've got like, well, so this is for Cancer Rising. And then you've got a template. You could say, oh, well, this is inappropriate for this one because of these, you know, this unusual arrangement of planets. But for a lot of them, it's like, oh, well, I can use this piece because it's relevant. Like it, you've already got material to work with. It's great practice. It's fucking, it's great practice. It's the best. Definitely. Kelly, did All you- right, to tie things you, you back to- Okay. Yeah, we 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 can talk more say, about this after. But what were you going to say? Uh, <laughs> I was just to bring gonna, us back to the you, forecast since I'm already like violating my. Uh, let's talk about the forecast first because we're going into like far afield into conceptual astrologer, uh, practical like how to write horoscope discussions. Um, wasn't just World War Three that was happening at the beginning of the month. 
uh, or that was threatening <laughs> to happen with the Saturn Pluto conjunction, but also there was like an entire like continent that was on fire. Uh, Kelly. Yes, <laughs> yes, my poor country. You so just got first, back, back from a trip there. Yes, yeah, I just just flew out of Australia less than twenty four hours ago. Uh, I do want to say that some of the images that got circulated on social media were fake. So there was okay. a lot of fires burning around the country, but there was one particular image that kind of showed the whole country on fire, and that that was a, a false image. Um, but yes, literally, Australia has had its worst start to the bushfire season. Um, and the intensification of that energy uh, between Christmas and New Year's was phenomenal. And I was very concerned with some of the warnings, the weather warnings that were coming out late December, because I could see Mars sitting at the end of Scorpio. And I thought Mars moving into Sag is not going to be helpful for bushfire season. Um, and and so it proved to be the first weekend or the first three or four days of Mars in Sag, uh, you know, there were just sort of firestorms that were incredibly destructive. Weirdly enough, when you think of the symbolism of Sagittarius, uh, relatively um, less loss of human life in these bushfires than what Australia has had in previous bushfires, but an extremely large loss of native wildlife. Uh, right. They're talking about like crazy numbers of like just like millions and millions of animals. Yeah. The the first count that came out was something like 480 million um, animals, uh, especially some of our really exotic ones that have specific habitats like the koalas and, and the wombats and the kangaroos and things. Uh, so that's that it was a weird eclipse sort of portal that like the country was in this weird nodal kind of dragon belly fire of some kind. Mm. Um, and it's not that it's gone, but within about two days of Venus moving into Pisces, the temperatures cooled down and there started to be little bits of rain showing up that have helped contain um, some of the out of control fires. So it's been very interesting to watch that just from a very simple transit perspective. And of course, the big rains are forecast for February and March when we'll have Mercury doing its extended cycle in Pisces. Right. Is there like a national chart, like a solid national chart for Australia that you use or... I usually go with the Federation chart of 1901, um, okay. which uh, the swearing in chart, it's January 1st, 1901 at around 1.35 p.m. in Sydney, Australia. It has a 29 Aries rising. And mm. in that chart, the Sun and Saturn are at 7 and 10 Capricorn, and there is a stellium of planets in Sagittarius. Um, wow. And the ascendance at 21. Oh, yeah, that one. Aries, is yeah. that what you said? 29 Aries, I think. Okay. Um, what was the data again? I'll throw the, uh, put the Yeah. So I've got here from Solar Fire, 1st of Jan, 1901, at 1.35 p.m. in Sydney. And what is this? Uh, the swearing in chart. So it's when Australia kind of became its separate entity but still under the British crown. Got it. Um, yeah, I know some astrologers prefer the settlement chart from a couple of hundred years before, but because yeah, maybe you so should preface that because, like, the U.S. chart, yeah. for example, is just like widely debated and like is just all over the place. Is it, it's not that bad? It sounds like though. No, there was a very specific sort of swearing in of the first Australian government at this time. Um, whereas the the only contention with Australia, or the, the contention with Australia, I should say, is that. Some people, and particularly Ed Tamplin, who's a very was a very well known mundane astrologer out of Australia, 
He used to favour the settlement chart when the white settlers first arrived in Australia, uh, which was a couple of hundred years before this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I favoured this chart just because of the political connection. Um, you know, this is basically when Australia first had it, first formed its own government. Okay. Um, yeah, so this would put a cardinal sign rising and the, a sun-saturn conjunction in the 10th house, and then that's exactly where... We've got the the Saturn-Pluto conjunction happened recently up there in Capricorn, and then, of course, the solar eclipse in Capricorn and the lunar eclipse in Cancer. Yeah. And the the leader, the prime minister of the country, has been absolutely lambasted. He's been trashed for just showing a horrific lack of leadership through the Mm. fires, Um, in some ways being incredibly disrespectful, showing up in fire zones for photo ops when people are still trying to work on um, recovery. Uh, projects and things like oh, that. So, so did, sort did you of catch that? The, sort of the the mission accomplished moment. Yeah, but you, people are, are not. They're, they're like nothing's done. We've just managed to survive the night, kind of thing. Right. Uh, so in um, in the U.S., Kelly, there was uh, George Bush Jr. showed up on an aircraft carrier with a big thumbs up. It said "Mission accomplished." Like I don't know, a year or two into the Gulf, uh, into the. Iraq war and all that. And it would go on for years and years after that. But that that picture of fake accomplishment was sort of a banner for his incompetence. Yes, that's exactly what it's been like. Um, he showed up in a few areas and there was footage of, you know, fireys that are exhausted from, you know, because most of our firefighters in Australia too, like there is a professional service, but in the most rural areas, they're all volunteers. And uh, he was trying to, you know, the the prime minister was trying to shake somebody's hand and the guy was like, I don't want to shake your hand. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, so, well, that's yeah. A, that's an interesting example of how, of that thing they always say that um, sometimes like the 10th house of the, of the country's chart can represent the people in charge. And it's interesting with some of those transits going through that sign that the leader of the country getting so much flack for the handling of the whole crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's been a, I guess, a notable thing. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was one of the major things. So that kind of brings us to where we're at today. Cause we're just starting to come out of some of that, which mm. it's kind of tricky though. Cause we're, I want to say come, we're coming out of eclipse season. We're coming away a little bit from the Saturn Pluto conjunction but then in February, it's like Mars goes into Capricorn and Venus goes into Aries. So there's a little bit of like an intensification in, in some ways of some of that pileup of major outer planet stuff in Capricorn almost only gets intensified at this point. Yeah, there is this weird thing where aspect-wise, uh, there seems to be fewer and less intense aspects, you know, direct degree-based aspects, but with the ingresses of Venus and particularly Mars into cardinal signs, it's almost like there's still a pressure coming through on this very inflamed cardinal axis. Yeah, and we get the build-up to the Saturn, uh, the Mars-Saturn conjunction, which is going to culminate eventually not in Capricorn, but once they both move into Aquarius, um, but it sort of starts building up at this point uh, in the middle of February. Yeah, and there's this weird thing where for almost six, like nearly three months, we will have Mars and Saturn co-present. 
because Mars and Saturn will be together in Capricorn for about six weeks. And then there's like a week transition where they both move into Aquarius and then we'll have Mars and Saturn together in Aquarius for about six weeks. So there is that sense of we've done the Saturn Pluto and now we have some Mars Saturn uh, to come. Right. All right. So here's the chart for February 1st, just to give us context of like where we're starting at the beginning of the month. Um, we've got Mars going through the later part of Sagittarius in the first half of February before moving into Capricorn on the 16th. Um, it does that simultaneously as the Mercury retrograde. That was like the main thing I really focused on in my horoscopes for February is that simultaneous Mars ingress into Capricorn on the 16th of February and Mercury stationing retrograde. Uh, which seemed pretty notable. Is that, as far as you guys were concerned, one of the most notable things that happened this month or what caught your eye about February? Yeah, that's the, uh, uh, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to just give, do one paragraph on the month, it's that it's pretty solidly split down the middle. Yeah. Um, it's right, it's on the 16th, we have uh, Mars moving into Capricorn, where it joins the South Node and Saturn and Pluto and Jupiter. Um, <clears throat> and on the very same day, we have Mercury stationing retrograde. Um, and so we do have some important ingresses of Mercury and Venus during the first weekish of the month. And then we have a full moon after that. Um, and then we get to the middle of the month. And then that's a that's a different kettle of fish, as some people right. might say. As our, our Australian friends might say. Uh, I love it. I were <laughs> infiltrating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be quite big, isn't it, to have all three of the superior planets plus the south node in the same sign for uh, a chunk of time, second half of the month. Yeah, I mean, for me, it seemed like um, – a lot of the some of the people with like day charts may have been like skating through some of the Capricorn stuff relatively okay, but then once Mars gets there and crashes the party in Capricorn, it's like nobody is quite getting through that area of their life without any disturbance whatsoever. Uh, whether it's a <laughs> day chart or night night chart, that's a good point. Um, and I guess the other thing, just as we're sort of summarizing February. Most of the astrological activity is happening in the last two weeks of the month. Just, you know, when you look at the layout of different aspects and things like that, there's this weird period in the middle of February where even the moon doesn't make any aspects um, for quite a few days. Uh, that's sort of the, the week following the full moon itself. Um, when I say aspects, it'll obviously be making sextiles and squares, but isn't conjunct any planets. Uh, so it's, it's just, a yeah, this, it's just a little different. Uh, the other major thing this month, uh, so we're focusing on the Mars ingress into Capricorn because that just intensifies the Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto transits already going through there. But the other thing that has starts is that Mercury retrograde uh, in Pisces conjunct Neptune, which is really similar to the Mercury retrograde we had around this time of the year last year that was also in Pisces and closely conjunct Neptune, which is kind of problematic because it takes the already pre-existing propensity for mercury retrogrades to have to do with like miscommunications and things like that and kind of amps that up because then mercury neptune conjunctions also typically miscommunication or even deception can be a major theme or a major factor during those aspects 
Um, so we get like a redoubling or an intensification of that as a possible theme, uh, especially right around the middle of the month, around mid-February. Yeah, it's a very classic Mercury retrograde. Um, we have you know Mercury to add to the possibility of <laughs> um, poor communication. Um, you know, travel plan problems, electronic madness, et cetera, all the classic Mercury retrograde things. It's Mercury in the sign of its fall, sharing the sign with Neptune and then adding retrogradation and then eventually towards the end of the month combustion. And so it's really um, <laughs> as underwater as Mercury can be. But what's interesting about it is that uh, the save, a saving grace um, is that at least Mercury is not tightly aspecting a malefic, right? Mm, so, okay. you know, one, th one thing to remember is that, you know, Mercury delivers whatever's in the mail, right? And it's yes. the planets that Mercury, um, that it's the planets that Mercury aspects that puts, put the packages in Mercury's hands. And so even though, you know, uh, metaphorically our Mercury here is the worst, um, is the worst post person ever. Um, they are not, uh, they're not carrying nail bombs. Yes. Right? And that's something, right? And um, it, to be fair, if we contrast this with the two other Mercury retrogrades this year, where Mercury is not quite as bad off, Mercury is strongly configured to Mars in both of those. Yeah. So Mercury will, Mercury will be carrying Mars's mail and delivering those packages. And so, you know, for me, looking at this, the saving grace here is like, well, at least Mercury is not, you know, doing, um, you know, doing evil business. He's just, it's just doing business badly. But I think right. it'll be really classic Mercury retrograde. No, like no better, no worse, but like, it'll be that it'll do a good job of confirming Mercury retrograde cliches. There'll be a lot right. of like head smacking. Uh, in the comments here, because we're doing recording this episode live in front of a live audience of patrons who've joined us uh, through our page on Patreon. So thanks everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, Ray Rawlings says that, yes, hired a shady contractor at that time last year. I won't be doing that again at this time. And that's really funny because that reminds me of my Mercury retrograde story last year, which is that we needed to sign a lease to move into a new place to try oh. to get the place with the podcast studio and that was during that mercury retrograde in pisces last year conjunct neptune and we were really nervous about having to put the electional chart and having an electional chart for signing the contract and that mercury neptune was going to be prominent no matter what so we just did our best to mitigate it as as best we could um but then we signed the contract and like moved into the place and then they forgot to tell us that uh, the whole building was going to be under construction over the course of the next year uh, and it, there would just be like loud banging and saws and stuff for months and months and months on end which is still happening which is why consequently we're recording this episode at like eight nine o'clock at night in order to avoid the construction noise so that was my fun mercury retrograde conjunct Neptune story from last year did you guys have one um, yeah, well, I was. I don't know if it's fun. Um, I took an unexpected trip to hang out with my ailing grandma. That's right. Um, yeah, and so I was. Yeah. Um, and this was. It was right. That included my birthday. Um, and so I was just. I was. Um, I flew from. Um, you know, 
uh, kind of up in the mountains on this side of the country to being up in the mountains on the other side of the country. Um, none of my flights were late because I think that Mercury was pleased enough with my suffering as it was. I think there were like four different connections to get from here to there, right? When you fly from like one semi-rural yep. airport to another one very, very far away. And so I was just, I was very cut off from normal communications and just in a very different world. Hmm. Yeah. What I'm also thinking about <clears throat> this Mercury retrograde, so it starts February 16, and it's not exactly conjunct Neptune, but it's close enough that we'll definitely feel the Neptune. To me, this feels a lot like having to go slowly or having to kind of feel your way forward, which is by necessity going to have you making decisions more slowly or having to take into account factors that are harder to clarify or identify. And mm. I, I agree. I think you sort of summarized this Austin beautifully where it's like, it's going to have those cliche delays, but sometimes, you know, if you know that's coming up, you can just take the pressure off yourself. I always like to give about five days before or after the station retrograde date itself. And that usually covers for Mercury, the period where Mercury is, is in station kind of around about that same degree. And just to either catch up on stuff from the past or to take a bit of a mental break, uh, you know, so we can get more easily overwhelmed, particularly with this Mercury in Pisces, you know, with Neptune, it is so sensitive. And so things like baths or um, just time out, music, maybe time away from technology, it's not going to be super productive. But if we can know that, then we can plan extra, you know, downtime where we've got the ability to control that. Yeah, I, I advise a, and practice a variant of that. Um, I try to leave slack um, during Mercury retrograde mm. periods. Um, you know, there are sometimes where I'll, I'll schedule myself really tightly and I expect X, X to get done so that Y can get done next. And because Mercury retrogrades very often have little delays or little reschedulings that uh, mess up a tight sequence. Mm. I just try to not do that then so that I don't have, cause you know, when you, when you put things in a tight little row, if you nudge one thing, then it messes up your whole, you know, your whole idea of how things were going to go. And so I just try to leave a little slack so that when the little, little chaos bubbles come up and burst, that it doesn't actually, uh, doesn't actually mess with the pattern that I'd envisioned for that period of time. That's right. beautiful. Just have the to breathing sit, room. sit back and let it let it ride mm. during the Mercury retrograde. Let it all play yeah, out. Or just 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 leave a little space because stuff comes up even if it's not big, even if it's somebody else who has the, you know, who has the delay, but you are going to get a thing from them and you need, to, you know, we're to the degree that we're intertwined, it doesn't even necessarily have to be your transit. Yeah, and someone in the <clears throat> Q&A section was asking about uh, whether they're more susceptible to Mercury retrograde because they're a Virgo sun and rising and they've got the moon in Gemini. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I usually say, yeah, if you've got a lot of Mercury-ruled significations in your chart, you might find the Mercury retrograde more of a thing. Um, you'll also find Mercury retrograde potentially more impactful if you're in a Mercury-ruled perfection year. Yeah, um, yeah. double yes. Or if it's going over like an angular house and especially an angular degree in your chart. So for this person, if they have 
Virgo rising, if their descendant is really close to, let's say, 12 Pisces, which is the degree that Mercury goes retrograde at, then that would heighten the potential for that to be personally tied into their life. Yeah, some good. I just figure. I, I know people are often wondering, like, how much is this going to affect me? So there's some other ways to uh, to work that out. Yeah, I've been meaning to actually do a new Mercury retrograde episode because you and I did one, Kelly, but it was like the third or fourth episode of the podcast. So long it was, ago. It's really yeah. early, and we were not taking it that seriously. I think we just got back from Norwalk or something like that. Um, so I've been meaning to come back to do a more like detailed and thorough Mercury retrograde episode at some point. Totally. But maybe maybe after this one, I'm sure we'll get some good stories and good anecdotes out of this this one in February. Yeah. And I do want to just amplify what Austin said earlier about of the three Mercury retrogrades in 2020, and at least said 2019, in 2020, this has a relatively benign quality compared to the other two. So even though it's going to be a bit confusing, it doesn't have the kind of more clanging or difficult interchanges that the subsequent two Mercury retrogrades are likely to to flare up. Yeah, the other ones have teeth. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, just because it's so on, on the on the yeah. yeah on the sliding scale of 2020, <laughs> this is the best a, Mercury uh, retrograde. Yeah, you in, like a, a in a more harmonious like era, a, a ranking. Yeah, yeah. So, but that is, I think that's a big feature. I mean, I think you've really honed in, Chris. You sort of started by talking about the Mars into Cap and the Mercury retro. They are two uh, of the standout features for February. Yeah. It's like yeah. those are the two main things. Uh, so the Mercury retrograde, it starts around February 16th uh, when Mercury stations retrograde around 12 Pisces. The halfway point when the Sun and Mercury form a conjunction exactly halfway through the Mercury retrograde cycle happens around February 25th, February 26th. And whatever at, by that point, usually whatever the issue was that if you're having like some Mercury retrograde snafus or, or difficulties or delays or miscommunications, usually there's a turning point around this time, around February 25th, 26th, during the conjunction with the sun where those issues start to be resolved, or at least there's some sort of end in sight that starts to become apparent. And then eventually Mercury doesn't, it, it actually retrogrades back into Aquarius uh, in early March, around March 3rd or 4th, before eventually stationing direct at 28 Aquarius on March 9th and March 10th. Yeah, and Mercury moves into Pisces on February 3rd, so pretty early in the month. Okay, so it yeah. begins basically the buildup to that. It's already in its shadow by the beginning of the month. When does it actually hit its shadow? So if 28, oh, question. 28. Aquarius, that means, looks like the first or the second. <laughs> So literally, whatever yeah, the- I would say by the sec- second, yeah. Okay, so whatever the issue is that because Mercury by February second will reach twenty eight degrees of Aquarius, which is the degree it'll later return to, there may be something that's initiated in early February, in the first half of February, that you think is like a one time event or that you should be a one time deal. But for some reason, later in February, in the second half of February or early March, you have to return back to it, and there might be some sort of either revisiting or some sort of do-over um, where you have to to go back to that thing that you initiated previously in the first half of the month. And the one other thing that maybe we should pop on the screen if you guys are interested is just to have a quick look at the Leo full moon 
Yeah, so that is the first. So no, no, no love for for Venus moving into Aries. Well, I mean, which is what happens between <laughs> that's true. Mercury yeah, if we're going and the full chronologically, moon. Give give us your love for that, Austin. All right. Well, let me um, it's a very it's a uh, there's a big difference in tone between yes. Venus and Pisces, where Venus is um, was for. Oh, uh, Venus moved into Pisces on January 13th and will be there until early February. 7th. Um, Venus and, yeah, and so Venus and Pisces, um, <clears throat> it's the exaltation of Venus. Venus is trying to make peace, trying to bring harmony um, while it's in Pisces. Um, it was square Mars for a lot of that right. time. <laughs> Yes. Um, and so road bump with that. Right. But it's still Venus trying to do that. Right. Yes. Whereas Venus and Aries isn't trying to make peace. No. Venus and Aries will enjoy conflict. Um, Venus and Aries can also turn conflict, can turn a little friction into fun, um, but, but will also not go out of its way to make peace. Um, nor will the natives, right? It's enjoy the conflict or just have it be conflict. It is the sign right, of uh, Venus. Go ahead. If Venus in Pisces says um, make love, not war, yes. then Ven Venus in Aries says why not? Why not both? Yeah. Or yeah. can't or just, can't yeah. We, yeah can't. Uh, I mean, it's it's Venus and Mars's sign, right? And so Venus. Uh, and so we'll find the fun to be had with Marsy things, right? Which can be, you know, the aesthetic of um, the aesthetic of beautiful weapons, right? It can be yep. the the majesty of an explosion. It can be, you know, the 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 fun, uh, the good part of friction between people, right? It's boring if we all just agree on everything all the time. Um, but those same sparks can, you know, easily turn into actual conflict. And so, you know, in terms of Venus's fundamental signification, uh, peacemaking, not so strong there. Um, and so we've got that for, I believe the rest of February. Yeah. We've got that for the rest yes. of February and Venus yes. has to, you know, uh, Venus has to make some, um, some, some rough squares to the cap party, to the the dark fortress of <laughs> yes. everyone hiding in the dark fortress of Capricorn, which is not, although even if it's useful, is not the most fun uh, set of planets to feel right. and to relate to on an emotional level. So it looks like Venus squares the nodal axis around the 13th, 14th of February, uh, yes. where it's squaring the nodes which are at around seven, eight Capricorn and Cancer, and Venus passes over that degree pretty quickly. Later, it squares Jupiter around February 23rd from 18 Aries to 18 Capricorn, and then starts getting into some a lovely square with Pluto around February 28th from 24 Aries to 24 Capricorn, followed in the early part of the next month but with the square with Saturn from 28 Aries to 28 Capricorn on March 3rd. Yeah. And I, I would say that, uh, so that very last part of the month and then the beginning of next month is the rough, rough part. Yeah. Um, Venus squaring Jupiter doesn't bother me at all. I, no. I'm actually glad Jupiter is there to kind of pad 
that uh, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, to to pad that square because it means that for the first while Venus is applying on on its way to square Jupiter, which is fine. They're both benefics. They're both friend. They're even though they're not in great places, they're good natured. Whereas once Venus gets done with Jupiter, then it's Venus. Uh, on the way to hang out with Pluto, and then least favorite couple days are between squares from Pluto to Saturn, right? Um, which is, you know, um, I don't know, not rock in a hard place, rock in, rock in a haunted place. That's a great. I'm like, what word are you going to use? That's perfect. Yeah. I agree completely. I think the Venus square Jupiter is less of a problem. Um, and it's, it's the Venus, it's almost like the Venus Pluto and Venus Saturn is, is Venus getting into the darkest part of the scary woods, um, which she's been approaching for the weeks. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, that's very much the, um, that's one of the vibes and sort of landscapes that Saturn Pluto has been putting out. Um, is the trapped in a scary place, whether it's like trapped in a world out of control, trapped, um, you know, in a house where there are fires coming up, trapped in, you know, trapped in a relationship, tra- whatever the trap is, right? Yeah. Um, Saturn Pluto creates Saturn Pluto with, uh, you know, historically we see like borders and boundaries and all that. Um, personally, we get that same theme, but it's being stuck inside of. Right, stuck inside of something uh, of walls that are um, uh, ominous and unfeeling, right? And so that that with a when Venus configures to things, we we feel that same pattern, but uh, relationally, or and that that could be relationally in terms with other people, like you know, you might feel like your relationship is this terrible trap for a few days, or you might you know, might be the way you relate to the world, but it, it's hard for for venus to 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 do the saturn pluto because it's so felt yeah that she's feeling the restriction the pressure the lack of choice the lack of joy and you mentioned this um at the start of your piece on venus in aries austin where you were talking about the dignity change you know and venus going from pisces to aries is one of those extreme shifts you know when a planet changes signs Mm -hmm. it doesn't always go from high to low sometimes it goes from like good place to neutral or neutral to tough but to go from a good place to a tough place it is quite an extreme shift Mm -hmm. almost overnight so the first week of February, we still have Venus in Pisces and then Venus goes into the difficult part. And and that's, you know, we've talked about this in the last, um, in episodes over the last couple of years, that as we're getting this growing emphasis on the cardinal signs, anytime we get a planet going through the cardinal signs, they're just picking up on that. Uh, the good thing, not that I can say really anything great about Venus in Aries because it is tough, is that it's basically four weeks and then we get Venus in Taurus. So yeah, and there there will yeah. be some you know the the moon conjunct Venus and Aries is still the moon conjunct Venus like it's fun yes. it's not you know it's not um it's not as uh it it's not something you necessarily want to save forever like you don't um, you don't want to make you know, a magic if, potion if, on it <laughs> right you don't want to make a magic potion if you have like a whole year to pick elections and you're going to pick this you know the best single one you're probably not going to go with the Venus and Aries. Um, but like, you know, it doesn't mean that it's just, uh, we can, when a benefic is, 
um, in a in a sign where it doesn't have a lot of essential dignity, it's not as good at providing the good that doesn't necessarily turn it into a monster, uh -uh. right? Venus doesn't become a Saturn-Pluto conjunction just because it's entered Aries. Um, and so the, the those nuances are important. And I, I think Venus and Aries can be fun, um, but I have things that that configure to that well. To that nicely, yeah. Well, and yeah. it's, it is good. I think the fun part of Venus and Aries, dare I say this, will be in those first few days before she gets too into the heavier part of Aries uh, because we're going to have Venus in Aries and then we have that full moon in Leo. So there is a little bit of a fire yeah. vibe. Like yeah, there is yeah, this yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like lively, active, social, extroverted, you know, luxury with the moon in Leo potentially, you know, uh, th that that's a, a – it's an, a fire tone that we don't um, – it, it's just a nice signature, I think, for those few days. Yeah, yeah so I think it's the moon. The moon's first ingress, uh, like the day before, day and a half before the full moon, when it just makes a nice trine, trine. Uh, to yeah. Venus. I think I think Venus. I think the moon hits Venus just after the ingress. Yeah, I think you're right. And Chris is doing yeah. There's so there's Venus yep. going into Aries, and then the moon into Leo. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. And then we have the moon off axis to the Capricorn, um, the dark woods. You know, the moon in Leo is bringing a totally different point of view through. Yeah, yeah, I it's like really, a, it's a, it's kind of a nice break. Yeah, and that's why you know the I'm really excited about the moon in Leo, the full moon in Leo this month, because it is just a, a change and a bit of a a more upbeat or forward looking vibe. And I think because it's our first full moon since the eclipse season, it's just got a more kind of neutral, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to have a little bit of an uplift in it, actually, that that fire vibe. Yeah. I, yeah. It's so not as if, weighty as right. the like eclipses we were just dealing with. Yeah. It's our first full moon that, to not be eclipsed since uh, of the year, right? Because yeah. we've only had mm. one full moon this year and it was an eclipse. Of in um, decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just on again, like on the sliding scale of 2020, it's pretty great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's Leo. Great so on that bell curve. That bell curve. And it's like over the weekend, you know, that weekend of February 8th and 9th, I think, you know, go out, do something fun, do something a little bit more, um, you know, enjoyable or even a little bit more expensive, you know, relative to, to what you might normally do, just play and have fun. Yeah. Um, and it's also nice because the thing I like about Venus changing signs at this point as well is it just gets out of that square with Mars. And while yeah. there will be a little bit of return to that, once we start getting the sign-based square, once Mars goes into uh, Capricorn, like a couple weeks into the month, there's this nice little reprieve where Venus is moving through Aries and it's no longer got that really close degree based square for about a week with Mars. Um, but instead, it's just sort of hanging out on its own there and it's not hitting any hard aspects with other planets for quite a while. So that, that week seems kind of nice here. What is the second week of February? Yeah. And definitely has a lighter vibe to it compared to some of the months that we're coming out of, uh, as well as some of the months that we're probably going into, especially once Mars goes into Capricorn. Yeah, so you know I what's mean, really frustrating. Go yeah. ahead. I was just going to say the okay. one aspect. Okay, you you go, Austin. 
We're no, both like, you go. No, okay. Uh, so the one aspect that I am like watching with Mars in Capricorn this month is the South Node conjunction around the 25th of February. Okay. That's that's sort of my pick for, I think this could be a bit of a gnarly couple of days of just a little bit of almost like the slicing and dicing of, of separation or, or ending or letting go with Mars there on the South Node. Mm. Uh, weirdly with maybe a little bit of um, some low energy just because of the South Node kind of zapping. Yeah, it's definitely that's right around. Neg- go ahead. That's uh, the same time as the Sun-Mercury conjunction halfway through the retrograde cycle. So maybe that's connected in some way or will be for some people seeing the whatever the resolution of the mercury retrograde is result or requires that um ending or releasing or severing uh, symbolized mm-hmm. by the mars south node conjunction i think that's a really nice connection not only do they happen at the same time but they're almost perfectly sextile yeah by degree yeah the yeah mars um i mean mars and the south node both like to negate They do it in different ways, but they can definitely agree on purging, whether it's the body, the friends list, the, uh, (laughs) um, you know, the relationship, the job, um, there, there, there's a, there's a profound, uh, agreement between the two about negation. I remember, and purgation is really the right concept. I remember I was thinking about this years and years ago. And then there, because there was like a Mars South Node thing, which is once every two years coming up. And then in the news, there was uh, uh, there was an article about somebody who was leading a sweat lodge retreat, um, <gasps> and they'd like they'd left the heat on too much, and several yeah. people died. Yes. And I was like, that that is too much purgation. That is exactly the. That was more extreme than the metaphor that I had in, you know, that I had considered, but that is, that's, that's the good worst case scenario. You know, if you feel, you know, feel the urge to purge, you know, by all means, but make sure you're not metaphorically or literally, um, hanging out in the sweat lodge until you have a heart attack. Go too far. There is too, there is such a thing as, you know, um, (laughs) uh, as, too little of a bad thing. I don't know. Whatever. There's there's such a thing as too much purging, even if cleaning up is a good idea. Yes. Yes. I mean, I had a weird story. As you were telling the um, sweat lodge story, I was like, this, just the when you said purging, I was like, it reminded me, and I don't know if I can talk about this. I don't want to um, gross anyone out, but I don't know if any of our oh, listeners have ever had. Yeah. I'm like, you might, you guys might like this. This is not a typical Kelly story. Uh, has anyone ever done colonoscopy prep? Like had a colonoscopy? Uh, no, not yet. Someday, <laughs> so looking forward you, you to it. You guys I mean, are probably far yeah. too young to do it. We have it in our, we have bowel cancer in our family. So we've had to start them younger than most people normally would. And colonoscopy prep is basically having a laxative for 24 hours to completely empty out your system. And uh, that to me is sort of, it's right on the edge of, like a, an extreme purge, but you don't want to take it too far, obviously. But right. that's a Mars South Node thing, I think. Well, um, and as I've um, been saying for many years, and people are, I, I see, I see the people on Twitter uh, are, are are coming to agree with me. The tail of the dragon, 
Yes. Um, is the part that would be most involved in the colonoscopy prep for the dragon. And yes. that one of <clears throat> one of the range of primary significations for the South Node when we're talking about bodies uh, involves that end and the things that happen um, with that end. Yes. Yes. Sorry to gross, but I can see some of our listeners are actually in the right age bracket. We've got someone who's a nurse and somebody who has done colonoscopy prep. So it is, it's the emptying out basically. Well, Um, you know, everybody poops, Kelly. Everybody does poop. And when you do colonoscopy prep, you have to do all the poops. (laughs) Is that, did did we find our title for February? (laughs) All the poops. Everybody poops. Yeah. Everybody poops. It's a classic children's book for a reason. It is. It is. I mean, it'd be a great toilet train. Anyway, so that's the Mars on the South Node. I mean, because I feel like we're going to see some sort of reactivation of the Marie Kondo thing. And, you know, that was quite destructive 12 months ago when her Netflix documentary came out shortly after the South Node went into Capricorn. In terms of everybody- Yeah, I feel like- Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, I don't feel like that's ever let up. It hasn't. I feel like it's, I feel like it's just been like- What didn't? Um, what are you guys talking about? The the they're like Marie Kondoing um of like different life structures since uh South Node Saturn Pluto formed up. Mm. It just it it feels like um like some sort of dungeon adventure where you clear one level and then there's like a deeper level and then there's a deeper level. Like I was just lamenting how much left there is to do the other day. And I looked back and I was like, didn't this start like a year ago? And I thought about all of the like clearing out of the inbox and then this structure and we moved and, you know, like all the stuff that we'd done. And I was like, oh, and there's still this much more to go. I was like, this is literally going to last until the goddamn South Node leaves Capricorn in that. That's what I think it is. I think the South Node in Capricorn, ruled by Saturn, this quality of time and matter and material world, and, you know, at a more inspirational level with the Mars South Node, it's clearing the clutter from the schedule. It's clearing the clutter in terms of how you're using your time and developing different skills with time management. Uh, But yeah, this is like, we're just not quite done with those South Node activations in Capricorn. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point. Um, I feel like we need to say... Uh, I'm going to say some nice things about Mars and Capricorn. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So it's so Mars is a malefic, and so that means that just like a sharp blade or a hot flame, it is not hard to injure yourself with it. Nonetheless, we need um, we need sharp blades and hot flames for a variety of tasks that are necessary to life. And that if you're going to Mars, um, then having a really strong Mars, Mars and Capricorn, it's exalted mm. there, uh, ambient in the sky can be very helpful. Um, again, it's gonna, it's gonna, the, the, the same sharp blade with which you chop the carrots for soup may be turned against some people depending on their charts and lives. But, you know, if, if you find yourself doing the chopping and making the soup, uh, it's nice to have blades, uh, that sharp. And, uh, you know, a, a stove that ready to cook. And it's, it's yeah. really, it's well, just, sorry, one more point. It's just, it's no, no, a go, really annoying. There's a really kind of annoying contrast with the mercury retrograde yes. because I feel like the, the desire to get some shit done is going to be, is going to be stoked, um, in a lot of people by that Mars and Capricorn, but then you go to do it <clears throat> and the details um, you know, uh, the, the details 
uh, ruled by Mercury are going to tend to just kind of run all over the place. Um, and so we've got like strong desire, but then, and it doesn't mean the implementation is impossible, right? It just means that like, you're going to get right to it. Cause you're, you know, you're really motivated. And you're like, Oh, I'm finally going to clear that out. And it's going to take, you know, twice as long as it might in another time because Mercury is, um, trash. Right. This is going to take longer than I thought. It would probably be a good keyword for this, this month. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, with, uh, the Mars. Sorry. Go ahead, Kelly. I was going to say Mars conjunct South Node. It's six degrees of Capricorn on February 25th. Uh, we just had someone wanting to clarify when that's happening. Uh, yeah. Um, and and they'll, they'll be co-present within a few degrees for pretty much the whole second half of the month. Yes. And this yeah. might help us to focus on the second lunation of the month, which is this new moon at four degrees of Pisces, which is happening right in the thick of all of that because Mars is just getting up to the south node by that point, and Mercury is um, firmly retrograde and getting close to, but not quite there, to the conjunction with the sun and the halfway point in the retrograde cycle. Yes. Yeah, that little new moon in Pisces, it's uh, it's still happening, even though there's a lot of other stuff going on around that last week. It started the last week of the month. Yeah, well, it kind yeah, of little, anchors little twinkle like some of, of inspiration. Stuff. Yeah, it does. Yeah, totally. So. I mean, I think too, like we've been talking a lot about Mercury and Pisces and Mercury retrograde, that sort of 48-hour window with the moon moving through Pisces, which is anchored by this new moon in Pisces, is just going to have a very Piscean, fluid, flexible, maybe slightly dazed and delayed vibe. Yeah, right. <clears throat> you know, th this might be somewhat individual, but I like the sun moving into pisces as far as navigation goes or i believe it's the 18th that the sun moves into pisces yes. um because you know if we're going to be doing this underwater um echolocation dream sonar mercury retrograde and pisces thing it's easier i think to have the light of the sun down there too rather whereas earlier in the month when the sun's in aquarius you know, the sun's trying to do rational, you know, um, cloud riding up above it, um, satellite view stuff. Um, and that's just, that's not where Mercury is at all. Um, and so having the sun go into Pisces, at least we're kind of like in that. Um, and it'll be, e I, you know, I, I, it brings the sun and Mercury in uh, into, the, into the same territory, the same... Um, uh, geography. Um, and it's like, okay, we're doing sonar, right? Yes. Rather, and sonar may not be the easiest thing, but if you're, if it's sonar, but you're trying to do radio, then it's even worse. At least, you know, you're doing sonar. That's a good point though. Sometimes needing with the mercury retrograde in Pisces and needing to switch to other senses that you might not be used to using or might not be as refined or detailed in order to like navigate the situation as a matter of necessity. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, you know, as I said, like that might be more me because I've got some some of my senses are in Pisces. <laughs> so I'm like that'll be easier, but like everybody's got an intuition, everybody's got that, you know, dream echolocation. 
Absolutely. And I think there's definitely something for like as a general thing for everyone where the sun and Mercury being in the same signs, you know, that piece can sometimes help out with clearer messaging in whatever form we have to get the message than when the sun and Mercury are split in two different signs. Well, especially if there are problems to solve, right? Like, yeah. I'm I'm cool with Mercury being somewhere else when it's doing fine, but when Mercury, you know, when Mercury's, you know, um, calling in Mayday, um, it, <laughs> it's useful to have some assistance, right? So if um, if you want to go back to that that uh, that new moon, I, I guess you're right there. So one one thing that's kind of fun is. Um, one, it's uh, again, it's strangely motivated being in a perfect sextile with a very with Mars in a strong position, and mm-hmm. then two, it's right, it's right on, um, it's right on a nice fixed star, uh, it's right yeah. on 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 Fomal Hot, which gives like a little bit of uh, a little bit of extra twinkle um, to that lunation and to. You know what a the the reset that um, that everybody gets uh, during that the dark of the moon there. Yeah, it's beautiful to have a star on uh, a new moon on formal halt. It's just such a nice internally aware but clear type of star. Um, it's this conversation about sonar and going deep is reminding me of a quote I read today about. I think I've just found it. I'm just going to read it out. Um, The quote is from the Tim Ferriss blog, but he's quoting someone else, a mathematician, Donald Knuth, I think I'm saying. I'm just going to read out a couple of sentences because I think it's relevant for this Pisces new moon period. Um, So this mathematician Donald Knuth says, I've been a happy man ever since January 1st, 1990, when I no longer had an email address. I'd used email since about 1975. And it seems to me that 15 years of email is plenty for one lifetime. Email is a wonderful thing for people whose role in life it is to be on top of things, but not for me. My role is to be on the bottom of things. What I do takes long hours of studying and uninterruptible concentration. And I'm wondering if what this analogy about the sonar is sort of like maybe disconnecting from some of that busy, you know, mercury technological stuff will allow everyone to dive deep into a particular topic or area of their life and get more of a felt sense of it, which will then filter up in the weeks, the days and weeks to come into clearer choices that are coming from a more embodied or integrated place internally. I think it's great advice. Yeah. Definitely. Makes me it makes makes me think of um, there uh, a certain depth of the ocean. It's the uh, aphotic zone or aphotic zone, mm-hmm. um, like photo fo- like photo or photon. It's 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 the the depth that light can cannot below which light cannot pierce. Yes, right where all the the crazy animals are, um, like descending into you know the the, yes. the mind and the soul both have an aphotic zone as well. Yeah, and I think that's what Mercury and Pisces and some of this Pisces new moon is about. It's about getting out of the place where the light and the thinking is happening so that you're drawing on, as you said, Chris, earlier, the subtle senses, the feeling, the intuiting, the sensing, which is more abstract by its nature, but can actually steer you in a more meaningful way. You've just got to slow down and get quiet enough to hear what it has to say. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's something also just tremendously optimistic about Pisces in general, and even with Neptune thrown really? in. Really, I don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> always that is my, my reputation. My, <laughs> if there was like a dictionary where you open it up and it has like an entry for Pisces, like there would be a picture of Kelly <laughs> and Kelly um, being looking very encouraging and op optimistic. Um, and that's what I think of in the highest expression of Pisces is not just, um, you know, sometimes, especially with the Neptune stuff that's transiting through there and some of the issues we get into with like miscommunication or uh, things like that, you know, that's can be the challenging side, but the positive side is just pushing through and um, having an overriding sense of optimism that can carry you through any situation. And that new moon um, has that feel to me, especially with the fact that once the new moon is complete, the next aspect that both planets make is that sextile with Mars immediately in Capricorn. So maybe the combination of that overriding sense of optimism with uh, the sense of like rolling up your sleeves to do some hard work and put in some long hours carrying you through and helping you to resolve whatever the Mercury retrograde issue is this month. Yeah. yeah. I do. Um, I did want to say that normally I really love the Mercury and Capricorn cycle. And I don't know, Austin, you spoke to this earlier. And I do still think it's going to be an incredibly productive time. It's just going to require a lot of effort for us as a general theme, you know, individually. And that was a beautiful piece there, Chris, where you linked the Mars um, in Capricorn to the new moon of like balancing the ethereal with the material, the, the like the tangible with the intangible. Yeah. Um, I was like looking at like what is the next aspect that the moon makes as soon as it completes the lunation is sometimes really coloring because it's like the first experience you then get in that new lunar month is whatever that planet is that the moon applies to. And here it's that sextile with Mars. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is taking us, of course, to the end of the month. We've covered both lunations. Uh, by the time February ends, we're still in the tail end of the Mercury retrograde period. Um, so that's still going yeah, this on. This is a long one. This one is yeah. longer in days than most Mercury retrogrades. Okay. Is that that's literally true? Yeah, yeah. They're not they're not all exactly equal in length. So this okay. one starts on the sixteenth and doesn't get done until the ninth. Interesting. Okay. Oh yeah, that is long. It's almost like three weeks. No, it's well over three weeks. Yeah, because three weeks is a normal like average, but if it's going longer than that, then that is a little long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can be a little under three weeks to several days longer than three weeks, like this one. Okay, so by the end of February, we're still in that, but we're in the second half of the Mercury retrograde cycle. Um, Mars has made it up to eight, nine degrees of Capricorn but hasn't started conjoining the Capricorn planets like Jupiter and Pluto and Saturn yet. It doesn't do that until March. Um, Venus is still making her way through the later part of Aries, as we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, and the Moon-Mars, the Moon-Venus um, aspect. Sorry, Austin, you briefly mentioned this in passing. That'll happen towards the end of the month. Just oh, as a, yeah. Looks like the 27th-ish. Yeah, moon, right. Moon. right that, that, that's... That's actually really rough. Because <laughs> it's it's right, the degrees, right? It's it's basically Venus, Pluto, Moon, Saturn, bam. Yeah. 
It's yeah. like Venus and the moon holding on to each other for comfort in dear life between the, uh, the, <laughs> between the, what is it? Is there the, the, between a da- hard and a dark place a ha- or a haunted a hot place? A haunted place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's just, that's just, you know, whatever. That's fine. At least they have hours. each other. Yeah. All right. So that moon Venus conjunctions on the 27th around 22 Aries. Uh, and then we're pretty much at the end of the month at that That's, point. Yeah, is there, that is. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any it, other major a leap? A leap? Oh, it's was, a leap year. So that's say, February 29th. It's a leap year, which means nothing astrologically. Astrologically. It's just a, <laughs> it's, it's a correction mechanism in this calendar system. Um, it, it doesn't have a special astrological meaning. I know that some people don't know that and now they do yay yeah yeah uh all right well i believe that brings us to the end of our forecast for february then it does yeah Um, i should mention at this point because i forgot uh i should introduce the election for february oh yeah so we always each month uh, with the help of electional astrologer extraordinaire Lisa Scheim, uh, pick out one uh, electional chart that's good for it's basically a lucky date for starting different types of ventures and undertakings using the principles of electional astrology. And we always try to pick out one good general purpose electional chart that has most of what you would look for, no matter what type of venture you're trying to begin. So obviously, it's better or worse for different types of things depending on what you're trying to initiate, but at least it covers most of the major bases in terms of things you would look for in any type of election. So the election this month um, actually takes place on, it's for right at the beginning of the month, the best chart we could find on February 1st, 2020. Ha! Uh, I, 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 I have some things scheduled for that. I was like, is, are they? did they pick what I picked? You did. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Great minds, great minds. I love yes. it. I love how you were waiting there, Austin, to be like, did they get what I chose? I, I was like, well, I that, bet he did. I bet they did. Well, that's what's funny is you can see sometimes when astrologers have like picked elections or when they launch certain things or when a bunch of astrologers start launching things all at the same all time. All the same 24-hour period. <laughs> They've all got the moon aspect. Right. Uh, yeah. So this is set for February 1st around uh, 2.50 p.m. local time, so just before 3 p.m. And here is the chart. So the chart has Cancer rising. So um, yeah, Cancer rising, we've got about uh, six degrees of Cancer rising, but that's not huge. We're mainly just shooting for Cancer rising in this chart. And the moon ruling the ascendant and being located in Taurus, where it is exalted. And it's in our location, at least, is at about 10 degrees of Taurus in the 11th house, which is one of the most positive or most favorable houses that has to do with friends and alliances and groups, as well as hopes and wishes for the future. Uh, The moon is exalted there in a fixed sign, and it's applying relatively closely to a trine with Jupiter, which is at 13 degrees of Capricorn in this chart in the seventh whole sign house, which is the place of partnership and relationships and marriage and other people in general. So it's a very like other people partnership and friend focused electional chart. 
that should be relatively good, especially for both of those topics, or at least initiating something in which you might want friends or a partnership to play a significant role and in a positive role. Um, let's see what the, the part of the chart that's a little tricky is Mars in a day chart in the sixth house. So it might be a little bit problematic, a little bit problematic for things involving like subordinates. Um, there's also a potential where it might not be great for health issues, but it kind of depends on what you're dealing with or what you're using this electional chart for. Uh, but it's relatively good for 11th and 7th house topics. Uh, yeah, so that is our electional chart for the month. You, what do you? What were you going to use this for, Austin? Can you say, or was it for something? Oh, uh, yeah, something secretive. Something secret. Right. No, it's it's um it's literally my plugs for later in the episode. Um, I will be announcing my uh, I will be announcing my 2020 class schedule and opening enrollment on February 1st. <laughs> I will also okay. be opening up readings um, to. Uh, <gasps> reading booking for the first time in a year. Um, you know, I was, it's funny. I was going to do it a few days earlier. Um, I was going to do it on the Pisces moon. Uh, and then I started looking at it and I was like, why not wait three days or four yeah. days and just do the Taurus moon? Um, so yeah, I'd actually just made that adjustment a few days ago. I was like, people and myself can wait for the better election. And it's nice, you know, February 1st. Yeah, I may go Taurus rising with that. We'll see. Okay, because right, Venus yeah. is still in Pisces, isn't she? And then you get yeah, if you're well, doing classes, then you get the Moon in the third. Yeah, yeah, there, are, yeah, there are a couple ways to to do that. I wouldn't do Pisces rising because I don't want Mars in the tenth. But I could go maybe. I could maybe go Taurus rising. Oh, I beg your pardon, um, Taurus rising. Yeah, and and I'll I'm also I'll also hem and haw about planetary hours. Um, but yeah, it's a nice one. And so one one thing about the pi the cancer rising that Chris put up there that's uh I think particularly sexy is that not only do we have um the an exalted moon ruling the rising, but that exalted moon is ruled by an exalted Venus. So we've got like a pretty we've got we've got exaltations two layers deep. Yes. Yeah, it's nice like exaltation wrong with chart. That. Um, the only reason we avoided Taurus is because we're still getting away from the Venus-Mars square, which at least is finally separating in this chart, so it's more preferable to some of the ones in January when Venus was still applying to that square with Mars, but it's still a little tricky having, if you were to make Venus ruling the Ascendant, then Venus is square Mars within three degrees in the day chart over there in the eighth house, which is just a little, little um, spiky, prickly. Uh, I think mm -hmm. you could say at the very least. Yep. Um, yeah, so I understand the call. Yeah. Uh, so for this one, we went with Cancer Rising. This is the one best electional chart that we could find for the month, but we also found three others, and we're getting ready to record our monthly Auspicious Elections uh, episode, which we released to patrons on the 5 and 10 and other tiers uh, through our page on patreon.com. So you can find out more information about that by just going to patreon.com slash the astrology podcast, and then you'll see the Auspicious Elections podcast as a potential uh, benefit if you sign up to become a patron through our page there. 
Um, and then I also, Lisa and I, since it's been two months um, since we recorded the last forecast at the end of November, Lisa and I were still scrambling to get our 2020 uh, electional astrology report together. But we actually finally recorded that and released it, um, and it was actually a lot of fun. We recorded a two-hour discussion where we went through and found one lucky uh, electional chart for each of the next 12 months, and then we presented that as like these are the best elections of the year. Um, and yeah, we actually found some great planetary elections this year. It was like almost every single planet we were able to find a good electional chart for at different points in the year. Like there was a Saturn election, a Saturn and Capricorn election. There's a Venus election at one point when Venus is in Taurus. I think we have one or two Mercury elections. There's a Sun election when the Sun is in Leo, and there's even um, an electional chart we really wanted to since the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction is taking place later this year in January or December. We found an electional chart that focuses on that conjunction, which is really rare and only happens every twenty years. So it's like a rare opportunity to pick out like a major outer planet alignment of the two largest planets in the solar system and to sort of capture that in an electional chart. I'm really excited about about that one. I don't think I was doing electional astrology in 2000 when the last time they were conjunct in like Taurus. Right. Yeah. That's so yeah. exciting. So That's a great resource for people, Chris. Yeah, so people can find out more information about that um if you go to my website chrisbrennanastrologer.com/2020elections and that's like a report that you can download as a video or there's an audio version and we also have a long detailed write up and then we share all the charts and uh Paula Bellomini also made us a little calendar this year so you can see all of the best electional dates at a glance uh in a little PDF that you can print out all right yeah and that's so. the way to do it too is to look way ahead you know because right. it's one thing if you're like i don't know should i have the party this weekend or that weekend but you know if you're doing something like starting a business right like you're you're thinking you're holding off on when to file the paperwork or you know buying a home or getting married or you know doing something momentous that doesn't happen every year you don't want to just like come into the month and be like i don't know what's good right you want to come into the year um and see where the ripest fruit lies yeah and that's why we did that cuz people are always asking us for more long term elections for like scheduling a marriage or launching a business or some other major thing like that having a conference or uh you know founding a country or you know these things that people do from time to time and uh yeah so we do our monthly elections each month where we just do the month ahead but we wanted to have something a little bit more forward looking for those that are trying to make long term plans so we did our first time last year it worked out really well and this year i think we've really got the formula down and it worked out even better all right so that's the elections for the month um what else let's transition to talking about some miscellaneous topics um the first one that was kind of heavy was that there was actually a, a major prominent astrologer who passed away in the past month and that was Noel Till, uh, who died in December, right? Yeah, at the end of December, I think. So he died uh, actually on his birthday, which is December 31st, uh, 2019, uh, and he turned 83 years old. So 
Um, this was kind of a notable thing that happened in the community because Noel Till was one of the most prolific um, authors of astrology books in like the late twentieth century. Um, I don't know how many he wrote, but I know he's he wrote like over a dozen books or something like that. Um, some of my early astrology books were written by him, and I was kind of going in that direction before I got into traditional astrology. And I think Austin, you read one of his books pretty early on as well. Oh no, I found like I don't know. I think it was like an eight or nine book series of just like learn astrology. Here's the basics at a that mm-hmm. he wrote um, <clears throat> in a used bookstore in 1998, and that's how I learned basic basics like. This is a trine. It's 120 degrees. It means this, you know, Mars rules Aries and Scorpio. This is a transit. Like all that, like basic, basic building block stuff I got from the, uh, uh, from a series of Noel Till books. Yeah, I think he ran a very, uh, like a, a pretty comprehensive teaching program for quite a long time. So there are many practicing astrologers today who did their training or at least part of their training with him. Yeah, he had some certification courses that were really popular. And he had like sometimes modern astrology is criticized for being too like airy fairy or too nebulous and not having like a very clear structure. But his work often stood out in that it was very structured. And he had like a university background. And he was also somebody's pointing out um in the comment section, Maureen is pointing out in the comment section that he was also like a noted opera singer. Uh, so he actually had this like interesting and colorful background. But one of the things that he really brought to the table was um, a focus on creating a structure and like steps for delineating a chart. And he also incorporated some new and sort of innovative techniques from the cosmobiology school, which was the use of things like midpoints, as well as techniques like solar arc directions was one of his big timing techniques that he really uh, helped to popularize in modern astrology. Yeah, that's the uh, one book of his that I have is the Solar Arc Directions one. Okay. Yeah, I never really read any of the other. I just got like the basic, basic stuff from him. Um, and I think I read something else like 10 years later for five minutes at Project Hindsight, actually. I think it was just lying around uh, in a in a room, okay. It involved, pre- yeah. Anyway, yeah. I was there was a phase in the early two thousands, like a f- three or four years into my studies, where I was really interest into his stuff. And he actually had a really active astrology forum back in the day. It probably one of the most active astrology forums in the early two thousands that I participated in a lot. And um, I remember. Like I cited him as one of the people I aspired to be like at some point in my application to Kepler. And I actually even um sometime around like 2003 or so, I issued a prediction on his forum because I saw like some major transits coming up in George Bush's chart. And I thought it looked really um tense and like potentially negative or dangerous. And I thought it would be like something super negative. Like I assumed I was like. 17 or 18, I thought it would be like an assassination attempt or something like that. And then I posted on the forum as a prediction, and it ended up um, being he flew suddenly into Iraq or like Afghanistan on Thanksgiving or something as like a surprise trip um, on that very day. 
and I ended up posting about it. I don't think I was gloating about it, but Noel Till specifically both said like that's impressive, but at the same time chastised me for making a prediction about a potential like assassination and said that's not really a good idea, but nice work otherwise. And I think I ended up citing that um, what I took as an endorsement at the time in my application letter for Kepler when I tried to apply, I think a few months later. So um, I ended up getting into traditional astrology and going that route, which took me away from his work to a large extent, but otherwise probably would have stuck with that school and would have been much more influenced by it if I had stuck with that sort of approach, which was largely influenced by him at that point. So um, yeah, that was a major loss. We've been really starting to lose like a number of astrologers. I know Kelly, you mentioned that um, a major Australian astrologer, Ed Tamplin, who did a lot of work with mundane astrology, passed away a few mm-hmm. months ago as well, right? Yeah, he passed away in October after a, a battle with cancer, um, and he was sick maybe three or four years ago, and then he'd kind of had a year where his health was okay, and it sort of seemed like he was perhaps bouncing back or or uh, potentially, I guess, going to beat cancer at that point in time, and then unfortunately it did return uh, in a way that was more um, extreme and, and not able to be treated. Uh, so I was just at the FAA Astrology Conference in Melbourne last weekend, and uh, his partner Sharon was there. Um, so it was nice to catch up with her and just sort of check in and you know see how she's doing. But he's he was an amazing. Ed was a. I mean, he was one of the people that I really looked up to when I first started in astrology in Australia. He had a weekly radio show on one of the main kind of regular radio stations in Australia for many, many years through the 90s and, and even through the 2000s. Uh, like I think it was a Saturday night show and he just he did astrology on mainstream radio for a couple of hours, uh, which was fantastic. And we were all sort of lamenting the fact that we would really love Ed to be around with all the the crap that was going on, particularly with Australia, um, both politically and with the fires. And mm-hmm. then, of course, um, you know, Ed was really good at doing mundane astrology everywhere. So for China and America and, and Britain and the royal family and and politics. So he, you know, his voice is is desperately missed at this point in time. Yeah, he was a a good mundane astrologer, and I remember following some of his different predictions about different elections and stuff. Um, closely, and he actually wrote like a really lovely review of my book just a few years ago, right after it came out. Um, yeah, yeah. So was, oh, that's beautiful. Nice, he was nice a really guy. warm person, as well as being like a really solid astrologer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, again, just this is going to become more of like a recurring segment, I fear, uh, but just like losing major astrologers and. Um, yeah, I, I was supposed to a few months ago. I was going to and almost did an interview with Noel Till, but that uh. didn't end up coming together. So I didn't realize things were going south as fast as they were. Um, so I'm sad not to have gotten that. But uh, there are some good. I think there's a good interview with him that Kathy Rose posted on YouTube recently. So people can do a search for that, and they'll probably find it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Chris, because that came up for me a little bit. Uh, when I was at the conference, just I, I was talking to Dorian Greenbaum. You guys know Dorian, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just having a chat to her, and you know, my I just cheek. I, Dorian and I have had a beautiful connection at different conferences, so I just sort of cheekily asked her, you know, 
is there enough time for you to publish all the things you're working on? Because she always seems to have so many deep, intense projects on the go, you know, in the rest of your lifetime, because it it is a little... I do get a little concerned about the experience and the, you know, the research that some of these older astrologers have done. I don't want that work to die with them. You know, so the the work you do, Chris, with interviewing people, I mean, if they can get their stuff published, and I know Tony at Astrology University is always very keen to try and, you know, capture some of their work in, in webinar recordings, just so that the brain's trust of what other people have done before us is is kept or made accessible in some way going forward. Yeah, when it's a real stark reminder of just like what you lose when a major member of the community dies and all of the like collective wisdom that they have from years of experience of doing astrology and working with yeah. clients and um like making predictions and then seeing how they work out and like learning from that and some of them, you know, fortunately write and teach and have students and protégés and people that go on to to carry on their work but there's still only for even the most prolific of them like Noel Till probably like a small portion of their actual knowledge that they actually share or get out on paper in a lecture or what have you and a lot of that just like sort of disappears uh when you lose them otherwise yeah i w- i would also add that <sighs> You can knowledge can be written down to some degree, but skill really needs to be passed down. You really need that person mm. there because mm. um, there are so many little nuances that you pick up uh, in terms of how a person approaches this, you know, each individual situation. And again, some of that gets distilled into knowledge, which is easier to pass down. It's more coalesced in concrete, but there's also like skill and it's very difficult to, um, you know, you, you have to reconstitute knowledge into skill. Um, whereas when a person, when a person is present, um, they can pass on skills, um, in a way that, Mm. that just not possible when they're not, uh, here anymore. That's right. But it, you know, uh, Noel had, um, has, um, a legion of, of students, um, and so, you know, his skills, uh, yeah, his skills did not go quietly into the night. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, let's see what other major discussion topics or like news things have happened over the past month since we last spoke. So I forgot a couple when we were talking before the show. Did you guys see my note on this? No, no. So when I wrote an article for Wellbeing Astrology in 2017 looking at Saturn going into Capricorn and I just flagged, you know, January 2020 as, you know, with the Saturn-Pluto conjunction having to do with sort of changes with dynasties in addition to some of the political stuff that we were looking to see. Right. And so... Uh, that rem- and then I just remembered halfway through the show today. I'm like, oh, I'm like, there's something that really big that happened in January to do with the dynasty. Of course, the royal family, and uh, there was also a bit of a thing in the the Murdoch family, which is the family that runs Fox. I don't know if either of you have any. Like, do, do you want me to say a bit more about either of those topics, or do you guys? Yeah, have I mean, thoughts? this is, this is Megxit. Megxit, yes. Megxit, and then isn't uh, Murdoch, isn't that, isn't he part of the royal family of Australia? Isn't that? Well, I mean, I don't know if people want to claim him, but (laughs) yeah, I know. (laughs) Murdoch is Australian. Uh, 
Uh, so, yeah, yeah, let's start with the Prince Harry one because that one's interesting because we actually have birth data for both Prince oh, Harry as yes. well as Meghan Markle, right? Yes, we do. And okay. funnily enough, we just mentioned Meghan Markle's chart in our year ahead episode. One of our listeners reminded me, uh, or maybe our Q and A episode. Uh, which chart are you going to do, Harry? Okay, so Harry. Uh, well, I mean, there's so many things for Harry. Just to give you a quick set up. He's a day chart. So Mars is his out of sect malefic and it's placed in the 12th whole sign chart. Right. He's, Although for, like first things first, he has Capricorn rising and Jupiter okay, right, and Capricorn, right, right, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's just start with like the Start most, with the very basics. Just he, there's so much stuff going on in Capricorn right now. We just had those that eclipse there, solar eclipse at the end of December and he has Capricorn rising. So that is like number one, pretty important. Totally important. And that eclipse that we just had in December, which was very early cap, was right on his Jupiter, which is his time lord right now because he's 35 and he's okay, in 12th so house year by perfection. 12th house perfection year, nice. Those Where are he fun. Has, well, they're fun anyway, but especially when you throw in that he has Uranus, Mars, and Neptune in his 12th. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So the, and the solar eclipse is in his first house in late December, but then there was the lunar eclipse. In, in his, his seventh. seventh house right after that. So major um, new beginning and defining in terms of his sense of self with Capricorn there in the first, but then also some sort of culmination of events with respect to his relationship, or in this instance, his marriage with the lunar eclipse taking place in his seventh. Yes. Yeah. And on the eclipse piece, I mean, just slow me down if I go too fast, guys, because I've obviously looked at this a lot. This is like... <laughs> my jam with the Royals. Megan is a cancer rising chart, about 24 cancer rising. Really? So her, okay. oh, wow. so her descendant is 24 Capricorn. And uh, so she was also very eclipsed during this time. Um, so they have basically reversed signs on their ascendant descendant axis. Uh, yeah. Let me put her chart up really quickly. So she was born August Fourth, nineteen eighty-one, four forty-six a.m. You got the data there, Chris. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm pulling it up from Astro Data Bank, which is really helpful. That Astro.com puts all of this out there for free. Great public service. Park, California. Okay, so uh, that gives us her chart, which is as you said, twenty-four Cancer rising. Uh, Moon is the ruler of the ascendant at four uh, Libra, conjunct Saturn at five Libra in the fourth house, and Jupiter. Yeah, so you talk about a cardinal chart. Um, she's incredibly cardinal. And yeah. That's yeah, great that their ascendant-descendant axis is flipped, though. That's really funny, and then it brings in time periods like this with the eclipses when they're falling in that axis into pretty stark uh alignment with each other absolutely absolutely and of course her ascendant or her descendant at 24 cap you know very close to the saturn pluto conjunction and will in fact see two exact jupiter pluto conjunctions at 24 capricorn throughout 2020 uh, so okay. it's wow. all sort of seventh house activation for her um and what's her perfection this year so she's a little older. She's born in 81. Um, I think she's 38, so I think she's a third house year. Okay. 
because just going back to his, that's super interesting. And this brings us back to this conversation we had in part two of the houses episode. So 12th house perfection year, he has Mars there in a day chart. And this really brings in the issue that I often see with the 12th house. And I I just want to defend like this is a hill that I I will die on, which is the 12th house (laughs) having to do with enemies or sometimes like detractors or people that are working at cross purposes to you. And when you have especially like difficult placements in the 12th house, that sometimes becoming a much more significant part of your life than it might be for somebody else, especially in years in which that's activated. And so the literally the primary reason that they're making this change is due to sort of being hounded by and receiving like negative press in the the tabloids and the media uh, to the extent that I guess that's the primary motivation for them. What has he done officially? They're like relinquishing their titles and they're going to start splitting their time between half in the UK and half living abroad. I think technically they keep the titles, but they won't be using them. Like that, that HRH, they're not going to be using, but they'll still be the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Um, and yeah, the enemy here, I mean, Harry has spoken a lot about um, the paparazzi. It's not even, it, it, it's very hard to explain the paparazzi in Britain. They're not like paparazzi in anywhere else in the world. They're incredibly aggressive. And I mean, it is Harry's belief that the paparazzi killed his mother and he. Right. Right. Cause like they were, the paparazzi were like literally yeah. chain, or chasing, chasing her his mother's car, car through the tunnel when it had crashed. Right. So he, he's very sensitive to the concept of the enemy just based on his natal chart, regardless. He's got Lord 12 in the first um, and his out of sect malefic is in the 12th. So he is very much like, I will do whatever I have to to protect my family from this enemy that I feel is attacking me. Right. Cause after like an initial like honeymoon period with the press and the paparazzi, they turned pretty drastically like against Megan over the past year or two and have been pretty relentless and like attacking and criticizing her for a range of, of different things. Yeah. That there has been a real turn and, I, th- I think the f- the weird thing is that Harry has always probably preferred a lower profile life, and this is just sort of the catalyst of that desire. You know, at this point in his life, with the change in circumstances, now being married with a child, um, mm. but the- I think they will perhaps be living most of their time outside the UK. Uh, so there's still, but all of this came up right before the Saturn Pluto conjunction. Like okay. from a timing perspective, uh, you know, they they put and Megan and Harry announced on Instagram that all this was going on behind the scenes, which was to a great shock and surprise for the Queen and for Buckingham Palace. Don't forget that in all of this, the Queen's ascendant is 21 Capricorn. Ooh, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. She is a zero degree Taurus sun and her moon is around 11 Leo because this is a Meghan and Harry story for sure, but it is a monarchy story and she is, you know, at the top of that tree, you know, whether we should have a monarchy or not today, you know, there's obviously lots of debate around that. Uh, 
So yeah, her chart. So it, it's interesting. Um, the Queen and Megan's ascendant descendant axis is opposite within three degrees. Right. So wow. that um, conjunction that's falling. So the Saturn Pluto conjunction was at twenty two Capricorn. Right. Yeah, it was, and it twenty two Cap. So basically, dead on the Queen's ascendant. Right on the Queen's ascendant and on Megan's descendant. Yes. Um, and so this, the reports, and I don't know, this is the speculation at the time, but they were saying that the queen might take this much more seriously because she took, takes her role as um, the, the royals providing like this continuation and institutional thing that is bigger than any one person. She takes that concept very seriously. And yeah. so in some ways she might have not been happy about this because this is like a breaking down of that to some extent there yeah there is uh harry's not in the direct line of succession because his brother william has three kids so harry comes after william's kids harry's like five or six in the line of succession Mm -hmm. so it's not like the abdication of 1936 when Edward stepped down but the queen would have still been probably very disappointed you know she wanted both those boys there, I'm sure. I mean, the Queen has actually said in her statement, while I would have preferred that Harry and Meghan remained full-time working members, I understand, and I give them my blessing to decamp to Vancouver Island. Sure. So there's a lot of astrology to be said there, but I know we had a couple of questions. Austin, did you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> no, it's really interesting um, yeah. from an astrology perspective. You know, I'm not really into the royals. No. I mean, I guess it's kind of fun for countries to have mascots, you know, little, little human mascots. That's that's um, a great way of describing yeah, the, it. The the charts are um, stunning. Um, I was just yeah. sort of wrapping what I know about that family around those quick flashes of charts, and it reminds me of um, oh, something I think we've all found to be true, but I think I first encountered as a statement through. Um, uh, Robert Schmidt back at Project Hindsight, which was he pointed out that um, in the charts of extremely prominent people, you don't see um, you, you you don't see their charts matching them less than people who are less prominent or successful. You actually seeing them, <clears throat> you actually see them. The bigger the life, the more perfectly the charts match. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it's just it's so easy, right? Like. You know, I, I just noticed with um, the Elizabeth, the Queen. So she has, uh, she has the the descent, or excuse me, the IC on Algol. Oh but yes. It's the, the, but the IC is in the fifth of yes. children, right? Yes. And so it was her child. You know, it was her daughter-in-law who was literally decapitated, who had Venus right there. And yeah. anyway, but there were a couple other things. But it's just like it's just I I, I under I under I I guess I can. Um, um, not forgive. That's, uh, but I, I understand wanting to look at royal charts because they fit so well. You're you're right, Austin. That they're incredibly symbolic in a way that's almost just so simple uh, with the astrological yeah. stuff. Yeah, you don't have to get you don't have to you don't get have to metaphor. get complicated. No, you don't One have to be me. like, well, it's as if it's like, no, no. There's literally somebody who's decapitated. This person's a king. This person's a queen. There's money. You know, like. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's all there. Well, and for me, it's just a good example because it's just a documented public example that everyone is aware of right now of the principle that we talked about before it happened, which is if you have personal 
planets or points at around 22 degrees of Capricorn or the other cardinal signs, then you are going to experience that Saturn-Pluto conjunction potentially in a much more personal way, and it may be much more significant for you compared to somebody else that doesn't have like a close sensitive point there. Um, or for example, if you have cardinal sign rising, like Capricorn or Cancer rising, then those eclipses are going to be right in your first or seventh house, and therefore they might be much more personally relevant to you in terms of either your sense of self or your sense of relationships. And yeah, it's just like a great demonstration of that in a notable documented life that people are talking about right now. Yeah. And I think someone who had had a conversation with this, because I've been on a bit of a teaching tour throughout January. So this question, you know, about the astrology of what's been happening in the news and the people in the news has come up a lot. And somebody made a comment about the Harry and Meghan thing that everybody can relate to knowing a friend or having a family member who gets in a relationship and then they want to break away from their family. Mm. Even though that's being played out like in the context of the royal family, that's a scenario that happens every day and every week and every month in our everyday lives. You know, so-and-so got together with this other person and then the two of them seem to be making decisions and now they don't want to be so much with us as the family. You know, that's uh, not an unfamiliar drama to, to everyday people. Sure. Well, maybe it's just something inherent to the square between the fourth and the seventh house and the potential where, especially if you have um, you know, uh, planets in both of those houses, how there can sometimes be a tension there between going in one direction versus going in another direction between family versus your partner. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we could probably actually keep going about that for like an hour. Hour on that, interesting. Well, let's talk about Megan's out of sector living. But no, you guys probably have other things you want to talk about, and I'm sure our listeners want to hear different Um, things. Actually, could we mention that really quickly because that's interesting? (laughs) Because I was rectifying somebody's chart recently, where I was talking to somebody a couple of nights ago who was saying that they don't, they didn't resonate resonate with their whole sign chart, and compared to their Placidus chart, they had a really late ascendant rising. And so it shifted all of their house placements over at least like one or two houses. Um, and one of the things that they were having trouble resonating with was Saturn moving to their fourth house. Um, and there was a few reasons for that. But when I started asking about some of those things, I was like, well, what was your relationship like with your parents? And she was like, I, you know, my relationship with my mom was a little rocky when I was younger, but it's fine now. And she didn't mention her father, and I asked, "What? What? Why didn't you mention your father?" And she said, "Well, he wasn't around, and I don't know why he wasn't there at all in my life, and I didn't meet him until I was 16. And so it was funny because it was just a repetition of something I commonly run into that's a real issue: is that people normalize whatever their personal experiences are in their life and assume that's sort of like the same for everybody, or don't see them as unique when that's like a unique thing compared to other people. Like not everybody has that experience necessarily in their life. Yes, yeah, so they just thought I, it was normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or they just didn't think about that like, yeah, I'm part of eight percent of the population. Right. Which means that, you know, there are lots of other people who have that situation. Um mm-hmm. and so people normalize it. But I, I do I think I've had that conversation with people 300 times 
Kelly, I'm sure you have as well. Yes. We're like, no, no, no. Like you're, and the 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 um the fortunate version is also yeah, the true. Reverse. We're like, yeah. no, no. Right. Like, do you realize how well things went for you here? Like, you know, talk to somebody at 35, and you know, whatever house it's in, and you're like, there have been no major interruptions or problems, and even when that terrible thing happened, it didn't damage this, let's say, career, this area of your life. Like, this is uncommonly good, and we can see this right here in the chart. Um, and that's part of what studying and being around astrology does for you is it, it shows you how not just not just how you're unique as an individual, which is, I don't know, um, always in danger of becoming a cliche, but um, the unique shape of your life, mm. right? Like where where your where your 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 miseries and joys and luck and misfortune are all distributed like it it really is characteristic um you know your life has a has a you know uh its own very particular pattern um not just like your idea of yourself yeah yet i think there is something known in in psychological fields where things that are familiar to us we project as being normal for everyone yeah, yeah we learned to, we we literally we have to normalize things in order yeah. to go about our lives yeah, yeah in order to just like get by and survive uh but that's really tough because so so that's something astrologers learn really quickly it's only by like seeing hundreds of charts that you understand many different lives and how they can work out and like what's unique versus what's not unique to an individual, so you can start making some of those distinctions. But that's really tough then if you're trying to make some of those judgment calls early on in your studies. And I kind of can feel for some people then why they run into that issue when they're trying to figure out something like house division, where they've just come into the field, they see that there's this discrepancy between like some people using whole sign houses and some people are using whatever Placidus or equal, and they've got a their primary test subject is their own chart and trying to figure that out and then it's complicated by another thing which is that you can't just take modern astrology and start applying it to whole sign houses necessarily mm-hmm. but you really need to use the entire apparatus of traditional and especially hellenistic astrology if you're going to evaluate something like whole sign houses properly because you need to be aware of things like sect like the traditional rulership scheme and how house rulership works you need to take into account things like sign-based aspects and perfections and uh sign-based yeah so, yeah sect is huge like um this person wasn't taking into account sect for example um yeah there's just like you've got to use the entire system in order to see if that technique works you can't just pull one technique out of that and test it sort of in isolation yeah, and I also think that there, you know, if we're talking about Hellenistic techniques um, and whole sign houses, it's important that we're also um, looking for the kind of outputs from those techniques that you're supposed to get, which is not a nuanced topography of how you feel. Um, you you will feel some of the stuff, but real like the Hellenistic techniques are there to describe exactly what I was talking about earlier, which is life shape. Yeah. Right. And we we of course feel that life shape. It's not that um our our psyches are 
uh, insensitive to that life shape, but those techniques are not primarily trying to show you a psyche shape. They're trying to show you a, a life shape in which a psyche is embedded, right? Whereas there are techniques, um, I think we could argue that a lot of, um, a lot of modern techniques are pointed directly at psyche shape and texture, right? Mm. And so there's, there's the the aims of the techniques and the and the the you know and all the the pieces that go in there. Yeah, I mean that brings up a related topic that I've been thinking about lately, which is I see some of the younger astrologers that are trying to reconcile like quadrant houses, like Placidus used by modern Western astrologers and whole sign houses used by traditional or ancient Hellenistic astrologers. And one of the common solutions that's been Keeps being put forward by different people lately, but it even like ten years ago, people were making the same speculation, which was, well, maybe Placidus and quadrant houses are more psychological and more how you view yourself subjectively, and whole sign houses is more objective, and external or predictive in some sense. And I, um, I've always wondered about that, but I, because I'm open to that idea, but I worry that it's hard because. That could just be a false positive because modern Western astrology was so psychological that usually we're used to just looking at our plastic chart in that modern psychological context. And that could be giving us like a false positive. Whereas when we encounter Hellenistic astrology, it appears much more predictive and concrete and external. So we start to associate it just because those traditions tend to use those forms of house division and maybe assuming that then. Quadrant is more psychological and whole sign is more predictive. And while I'm still open to that as a solution, I don't want to shut it off completely. I just want to be careful and I'd want to try to find a way to isolate that first to make sure that that's not all that's happening there is that people are doing that because that was the context in which those techniques were used instead of it being inherently that way in and of itself. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that right? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, so unless astrologers from, I don't know, about 1300 to 1700 in Europe who were doing predictive work with quadrant-style houses were just dead wrong, you can do predictive external stuff with a house system like Placidus. That said, um, if I um, if I read, if I look at my chart or any of a dozen or several dozen charts I can think of offhand, and I read them uh, psychologically using Placidus, it works fantastic. Um, I would say for my chart um, that it's probably better. It's probably a better like psyche portrait if I use um, Placidus than if I use whole sign, but it's a much more accurate life portrait if I use, um, uh, if I use whole sign. Um, and now, uh, just yeah, I don't, I don't see whole sign is like lacking well, in well, that psychological let, let, let element, me, though. Well, let me let me let me finish my point. Um, <clears throat> so, just because I can use Placidus to get a good psychological portrait, that doesn't mean that it can't be used for other things. And so, what you're starting to say is the the converse, right? Just because whole sign can be used. For uh, effectively for life shape, that doesn't mean that it can't be used for psyche stuff. Yeah, I mean, one of my objections is just I see the psychological component of the birth chart 
showing through and being just as clear in whole sign houses as the objective external component is. And while the external component is more there and more obvious to me, and that's one of the reasons I think whole sign is useful because you can test it by looking at like sign ingresses. Sometimes those sign ingresses are activating psychological complexes just as much as they're activating like uh, external events, like like Mars going into your first whole sign house and getting a period where you're more energized, but also potentially more like irritable psychologically or what have you. Uh, where where are you at? Have you have you solved this riddle, Kelly? Are you have you worked out? Because uh, I I saw you repost. Did you repost or did somebody repost for you your like whole sign houses and why you switched to it article recently? Yeah, I, I shared it again recently because I have been doing so much teaching in person and the questions been coming up a lot. Um, what, what was the title of that article again? Yeah, I think it's called Why I Switched to Whole Sign Houses. Okay, and it just basically details my experience and the process that I went through and how long it took me to make that change. Like what I read, who I was encountering. Um, there's a link, I think that Rob handbook, the little, um, like a, it's like a booklet, I guess, um, yeah. called whole sign houses, the original house system. It's available as a free PDF online. So there's a link in the, in the blog post for that. And it took me about two years to make the change. I guess I do feel that you can get both, external descriptors of events and the internal psychological state um, with the Hellenistic approach. And that is a huge part, I guess, of why I started to just streamline towards that. I You could definitely get the psychological approach in Placidus. And I found I got better predictive outcomes when I was working in Placidus once I switched to traditional rulerships. Um, which was actually the traditional thing I did first. I switched rulerships and then it was a few years after that that I switched house systems. Mm. Um, But I also think to the point you made earlier, Chris, it's not just as simple as saying I'm going to do modern astrology in a chart that's now structured over a whole sign format, whole sign house format. You actually have to import a lot of the Hellenistic techniques or traditional astrology techniques into the chart. And that's what I've been sort of saying to students over the last month is, when you don't understand your chart looking at in whole sign houses, there's six other things that you might need to bring in to do with the sect and the rulership of the houses and things like that, that you wouldn't get just out of modern astrology. So right. I think I've gone a bit off topic of what your question was. But, no, but it's, yeah. it's a system. Like That's a really good point. It's not just one piece. It's like a part of an overall system that has at least like 10 major interrelated Things on top of like you also have to be aware that you still pay attention to the degree of the midheaven and IC and the degree of the ascendant and descendant, and those are still important, powerful points that have the same meanings and can shift and import those meanings into different parts of the whole sign chart, which is like another hugely important thing. Like you still pay attention to a planet like Jupiter just the other day hitting the midheaven. Uh, here locally for me was like a, an important um, event took place. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the midheaven degree is incredibly important, and mm. I, I, I don't. We might split on this, but I favor it over the tenth whole sign house when I'm trying to do, you know, sort of the the trend or the tone for career and life direction. I tend to prioritize the midheaven degree and and the rulerships associated with it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's still hugely important. Right. Yeah. 
So this is such a good debate and we're still having it however many months or years later, uh, which is so juicy. Yeah, well, it's just important because I realized there was somebody, the context of the discussion was somebody who was saying that they felt bad because they wanted to like their whole sign chart, but they weren't clear how it matched with their life or there were just some inconsistencies. And then in sitting down with the person, it just reminded me that usually what happens is you have to show how all the techniques work together and what things they need to be paying attention to, like sect, like house rulerships and how that shifts and other things in order to truly understand what they're even looking at when they look at a whole sign chart. But it was just things that we all, all three of us take for granted that somebody just coming into this doesn't know that they need to be taking for granted necessarily if they're just listening to our forecast episodes or something like that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, you, you prefaced it with, you began the discussion saying something like, Oh, I feel bad for people who are in this position. I kind of feel bad for everyone, including past me, who's like a year into astrology where like, you're now far enough in that you can't just leave. Um, but, uh, like, and you're aware of a lot of things and you're aware that a lot of it is meaningful and you can't just, you know, you can't just junk it and be like, yeah, doesn't matter. Right. There's the, the way out is closed, but the way forward involves a lot of complexity. You know, Mm -hmm. the, um, one thing I've found and seen, uh, I've found as a practitioner and seen as a teacher many, many times is that there's like, there's, um, you know, the, the complexity and confusion opens and then you get through maximum, um, you know, yes. complexity and madness. And then things start to come together again because all the different things you had to learn somewhat separately start connecting um, and you can just look at a chart and see sect and essential dignity and accidental dignity and configuration to the mid you know, all that stuff. And it's just like, oh, it's all, those are all just different brush strokes in a painting, but like you have to learn those individually. And it, it, it is a very confusing point. And if you're there, it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It just means keep going. It actually gets easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the complexity there, Austin, like that wide point. It, it's, it feels chaotic because all of a sudden it feels like things are starting to get away from you, but it is a place just to sit and it does start to coalesce, like sit in that mystery or that be curious about, well, how might I need to shift or what other thing do I need to learn to to help me move forward? It's not like, oh my God, it's a bit confusing, so I'm just going to throw it out. Yeah, and it doesn't, or, oh, I'm making terrible mistakes. If I was doing it right, it wouldn't be confusing. Like, no, no, you're making excellent progress. Like, this is a yeah. point in the journey. Yeah, don't be disheartened by the lack of clarity. Yeah. So, um, anyway, the point that it's, the reason why it's coming up is just because it's an ongoing community discussion and there's a desire to reconcile whole sign houses and quadrant houses. And that's a de- desire that I share. I just want to be careful about how we do it so we can do it right and not recreate whatever the problem was that led to all this division like a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago when the house division thing first went awry. And obviously it's a, a subject, it's probably like a Saturn Neptune type subject, I think, is the signature for the house division debate I've noticed, I've talked about in previous episodes. So there may be some level where it'll never be fully reconciled 
in a like hard Saturnian type way that's fully where everybody's on board and everyone's on the same page. But it would be nice to create some sort of synthesis between the systems that makes sense and seems logical and um, is at least a worthwhile middle ground for everybody uh, in some way. But I don't know that anybody's fully found that yet. But I'm I'm interested in the discussion that's taking place that's attempting to move in that direction right now, at least. Okay. Yeah, it's um, necessary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So um, that was the discussion topic. Only other discussion topic is I getting ready to do my interview with Christopher Warnock about the Picatrix tomorrow. Uh, so I've been reading through all of the Picatrix for the first time. I had like sort of skimmed through it previously and gotten the gist of it, but now I'm like sitting down and going through it from start to finish. And that has been a fun and interesting um, process. There's been some 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 twists and turns along the way, some some positive surprises. Some not so positive surprises. Uh, so I don't want to. I don't know the order in which I'll release. If this episode will come out first, or if that episode will come out first. But um, that's been fun, and I know Austin, you were curious about checking in on on that after our yeah, I was really magic curious. and astrology episode. Yeah, well, um, and I've been Picatrixing for as long as it's been in English. Um, and so what what was what was your favorite what was your favorite thing something that you thought was really cool uh the coolest thing for me is just their application of electional astrology and how in Haran they one of the one of the things that came out of our episode that was a paradigm shift for me out of our discussion that came out in December from the magic and astrology episode that we recorded in late November was the question of is electional astrology itself inherently magical in some way and um, the fact that it could be was a little bit of a paradigm shift for me because I think there's different ways of conceptualizing how electional astrology works. But one of them is just the premise that if you start something at a certain moment in time, you might be able to affect the outcome. And it may not be clear how you affected the outcome, and there may be something hidden or to use a synonym like occulted about the the mechanism for how the outcome was changed specifically but by controlling or manipulating or altering when you begin something you could alter the future and, and in some ways alter your destiny or alter the fate of whatever you initiated at that time and starting to think about electional astrology more in that way was an interesting paradigm shift for me um but seeing how they were actually doing it um, and how it was tied into the magical tradition is was been the most interesting thing for me, especially um, one of the most interesting things hasn't been like the Picatrix itself, but instead some of the tradition it's drawing on, especially this book by like a ninth century astrologer named Thabit Ibn Kura, um, who had a little book that was translated by John Michael Greer and Christopher Warnock titled Astral High Magic. The uh, Imaginibus of Thabit Ibn Kura. So it just has some cool electional stuff for creating talismans, basically. And this concept at this point of if you can capture an electional chart, and if you can capture the energy of a moment in time in a specific object, because we already do that with elections in general by like, you know, um, launching a business under a certain date and time or starting a journey or 
getting married at a specific time. And those things almost have their own independent like entities that you can rationalize for why the alignment of something or doing something at a specific moment in time could be important and either positive or negative but the idea of creating a talisman and going out of your way to attempt to like capture the chart of a moment in an object is kind of interesting in and of itself and just some of the rules that they were using to do that um, are interesting to me because I can see it coming out of the late Hellenistic electional stream where all of the rules that they're doing are just perfectly in alignment with most of the electional principles I'm already applying, but they're just doing it yeah, in I, interesting ways. I, I, yeah, I, I went back and looked at uh, Dorotheus on elections yeah. last year, and I hadn't, you know, I've been focusing a lot more on doing magical elections and just using all the rules I've been doing for a long time. And I was like, I was like, wow, this, the, the root of this is absolutely in the first paragraph of Dorotheus on elections. Like it was, yeah. When the Picatrix actually cites Dorotheus and like summarizes a paragraph or two of him at one point. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the, the, it's very clearly a specialized outgrowth um, of the same art or the same, uh, the same timing art. Obviously the crafting of talismans requires other things that happen at that time. Like you have, it's when you do the magic. So you have to know how to do magic as well. Um, but yeah, there's a, um, there's great continuity with the tradition as far as the elections go. Right. Um, so that was an interesting thing. Uh, it also brought up other things about, uh, yeah, them doing good electional stuff, but also like here's some rules for doing some like bad things using electional astrology, and some of the moral gray areas, or not even gray areas, but like moral black black areas of astrology, as well as the discussion we had about why some people that are into astrological magic don't share their birth chart under the premise that someone might use it against them. And I have a little bit like clearer idea of like why that might be, or how in some instances that was being recommended um, at this point in some of these like medieval texts. Um, that's a whole topic. I, I think I'll get into with Warnock, so we don't have to dwell on it yeah, too much. Well, and, but and I, and I think that the way that something is explicit as here is an election to um, bring ruin to a town or village. Right, something as explicitly destructive as that, and here's the election for it. Um, it yeah. it magnifies an element that's already there in all electional astrology. Right, there were plenty of astrologers electing for their princes times to go to war, and war is for killing and for taking of things that are not yours. Yeah, because um, I remember in so our discussion it, you had this rationalization, which was fine at the time in some low level like meta thing of like, well, anytime you're going to elect something for somebody, it's going to indicate an increase for someone and a decrease from for another, and well, therefore not, not, not any time, but in any competitive situation. Sure, but certainly in that instance, like you start getting into much more clear specifics of like, oh, well, in this instance, they're talking about. Here's a electional chart for like destroying a city or something, and it gets a little bit less ambiguous in terms of the application of astrology and some of the moral issues with sometimes using astrology in ways that could be destructive. 
Yeah, no, and that's what I was saying is that it really brings that to the forefront, that that's a thing that's, that is, uh, that is part of the power of electional astrology, whether you're doing magic with it or not. Sure. Um, yes. So that's fun. Uh, fun stuff there. There was some weird stuff. I, I sort of, the Picatrix kind of lost me once I got to the second half of book three and it started recommending some really weird, uh, magical, like alchemical potions and, uh, talking about using like human body parts and stuff with that, which I was very not, not on board with. Um, but, uh, haven't, yeah. uh, haven't gotten around to that experiment yet. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I hope you don't um, <laughs> and don't yeah. talk about it on the podcast. Um, yeah, so there's some. But weird you guys stuff. are reminding me that I need to go back and listen to that magic episode that you recorded. That's the one episode that I haven't heard yet from November. Okay, it was a good discussion. Have you read the Picatrix yet, Kelly? I've read just little sections of it. I do own the Warnock edition. Um, okay, so. This is a good reminder for me to to go back and sink my teeth into that. I'm rereading Maternus at the moment because I just got the Holden translation this the 2019 I got the Holden translation. So Nice. Sweet. That's where I'm my head is at. For that. Yeah, reading. I've really been getting back into reading lately through sitting here reading the Picatrix and like having something that's a brand new thing to jump into and then also read all the scholarship around it because sometimes there's commentaries or like other books related to it or it, with Holden's translations for example you can read all of his lovely footnotes and stuff which is always fun. I actually like reading the footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> and then no, I wasn't and then being I'm sarcastic. Like, no no I I know I yeah. And like but I like they're very detailed but then right. you can like oh if you want to know more about this point go and read this other book and then it's just a book word nerd rabbit hole and it goes yeah, on honestly, forever. Honestly it was Holden's like excesses in his footnotes, which probably influenced my own. And it's one of the reasons why in that area, my book is a little bit of a mess in some places and, and going kind of crazy with the footnotes and the long digressions. But I always enjoy reading Holden's works for that reason, because he has these great footnotes. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, that's not on the Picatrix. Sorry, I know you're, you, because you're interviewing Chris this week, Christopher. Yes, tomorrow in like not that many hours. I've got to read the rest of the Pigatrix tonight. What do I have in store for me in book four, Austin? Do you recall? You haven't gotten in. Well, there is the probably the most infamous passage. I don't like this face that you're making of you look nervous. No, it's the best part. (laughs) Okay. No, no. I'm I'm nervous for you. I'm I'm fine with it. Um, But it's the uh, uh, how to construct an oracular head. Which oh, right, doesn't seem famous. to have any. Which seems to have, yeah. Which doesn't really seem like astrological magic at all, but it's in there. There are a few things you're going to get into the rumors section, where the author's like, "I heard from somebody who heard from somebody that some people do this," um, and so that's where it gets even more colorful. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely here for the like advanced use of electional astrology, and it has a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, some of the medieval ideas about certain things, I'm not as here for. Like, it says something dumb at one point about uh, women's like menstrual blood being able to kill a man or something like that. Like anybody who bathes in it will will die. And I was re- being reminded that it was like a text that was written in like the 10th century. 
when that was yeah, probably that's probably not true. Yeah, probably. Probably. I like how you qualified <laughs> that statement. Different cultural understanding what... of such things at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, with the Picatrix, you there's um, there's a lot of gems. Um, it's not an it's not a how to manual. There are pieces that are how to, um, but it's not organized for clarity of comprehension. There's like clear section, unclear section. Oh, like there are parts of it. I remember when I first got a copy, and was it 2007? Um, I picked it up, and I was like, oh. I'll do a Venus election. There was a good Venus and Libra election coming up. I did a thing. I got um, cash prizes and treats. Um, and that part was really clear. But then there were, you know, whole swaths that were um, confusing. And I would say that some of it, more of it is useful and clear now than it used to be. But there are still some sections that I don't think um, have a lot of utility. Um as a practitioner, they may be of some historical value, but it's definitely like it is a hodgepodge. It's an intentionally constructed hodgepodge, but it it is it is a podge, and you gotta you gotta pick through it. Yeah, definitely. But there's definitely some good stuff there. So recommend checking out. Probably not a good intro to astrology book. Probably not going to replace <laughs> like the only astrology book you ever need. But it's somewhere a little further down on the hierarchy. Uh, well, but. what's funny is that a lot of um, so a lot of people in the occult community in Magic Land knew about the Picatrix for years and years and years before mm. it was available, and they were super excited to get it and do some fucking magic. And then they found out, you know, you get the Picatrix and you're like, oh, I have to spend like five years um, becoming competent in traditional astrology before I can really do any of this. Right. Um, it's, and, um, and most never, uh, never cleared that bar. Um, but people are like, oh, I'm into astrological magic. I'll just get the Picatrix and get started. Are you really good at astrology? Like, do you have like high level electional game? Yeah, well, that was one of the hope, funny, not like, electional and natal game, because one of the things is yeah. they want the chart in some instances to be rooted into the natal chart and put a lot of emphasis on that. But then it raises this really interesting issue back to the fate free will issue, which is there's an implication that unless the natal chart or the hori chart has promised that thing, like you don't have any business trying to elect it. Which really comes back to a fundamental issue about electional astrology and how much leverage we have to elect or to create something um, if it's not already promised in the birth chart or by fate in some way to begin with. Yeah, or <clears throat> if we were to loosen the language allowed, because there may be some things that we are allowed but not promised. Mm. We are permitted but not guaranteed. Right. Um, and sometimes you just have to do things. And that's one of the issues that we've run into sometimes with just recommending the electional charts each month is you can't always root like every chart really well into your birth chart. And while that would be a good ideally, sometimes you just have to start things on a certain day. And if you have to do that, then when is the best day to do that or the best hour to do that on a specific day or in a specific week in a given month? And that's often what we're more preoccupied with with some of the electional charts uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I'm um, personally, I'll take a good election over a well rooted one 
if I have to choose between it being rooted to the nativity or just being a better chart, I'll take the better chart. Yeah. I mean, um, Kelly, will you, when you're trying to like do something, will you first start looking at the chart or will you first start looking at like the transits of the birth chart first or how do you, what's your Yeah, I don't order? do a lot of electional work these days, but I, I mm. went through a period where I did a lot for clients and a lot of it, uh, there was, you know, a fair amount of relationship and wedding elections that went there. So I would, I would have always started with a look at the natal chart uh, in those situations. I don't know, for me, I think the more significant the undertaking, the more important it is to find that sweet spot between a nice chart, but also some anchoring in the natal chart. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, and, you know, obviously the ideal is to get a nice chart that triggers your birth chart nicely. There yeah. are certain times of day that I just won't do things because I know it's not great for my chart, even mm. little things. Um, but yeah, so it's it's trying to find that sweet spot, which is tricky, and I'm not sure I've got a hard and fast rule because I, I always sort of feel like based on this circumstance, I'd do it this way, but in this situation, I might prioritize something different. So in the in the short term, though, if we're just talking about like on a specific day, and you're are you paying attention that much to like the less, chart of the moment or less? Like if I have to, if I just want a nice time to send a newsletter or, or something mm. like that for work, I'm like, oh, there's a nice moon aspect, send it. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm much less concerned with how it would interact with my chart, for instance. Okay. Um, but, you know, when I was doing our wedding chart and doing wedding charts for clients, I was I was much more concerned about what it was triggering in the natal chart in addition to it trying to be a nice chart itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's course. fair. When I was talking about um, airing, uh, and I still like, uh, so the ideal situation is a great election that's rooted, right? I think. Yes, that's that's what we're all that. striving for. But um, we just we have to make concessions. Yeah, and I, I would when I said earlier that I I would err on the side of a good election um, over the rootedness. That's generally true. But you bringing up marriage charts, I would probably try hardest to root it for something as deeply personal um, mm -hmm. as a marriage chart. Yeah, and and that's literally what I've done when I think back on it. One yeah. of the issues is just what do you do when you're having bad transits and you still have to do something? You don't just stop and like not do anything. You just do the best you can with what you have available. And sometimes that's when you've just got to pick the best electional chart, even if you're having tough like Saturn transits that are long term at that time. Yeah, well, it's the best of all possible worlds, right? Not the best of all imaginable worlds. Although, you know, to be fair, there is something to be said. For and this is maybe just a I'm getting older, um, but like you know, recognizing that I'm probably going to be around. I've been around for a while. I'll probably be around for a while. There's some things that feel like they need to get done right now, but like you know, that's okay if that's a next year project, right? There's yeah. the stuff that absolutely just needs to get done and pick the best time of the times that are here. Um, but you know, there. They're, I don't know, I think we live in a pretty frantic culture and that there are, there are generally some things that we feel like need to get done immediately or this month that realistically aren't going to get done for a while and that we might be better off letting those, you know, coast out in time. Yeah, definitely. And then there's the thing that happens where you don't actually 
have the power to do electional astrology for something that's coming up. Like sometimes with my teaching events, it's like, well, I'm going to be in this city on this date, so let's do something. And then in hindsight, it's like, oh, that was a good thing, or that was actually a bit of a tricky thing, but we managed to make it work because of X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I love that the most, the thing that like goes, that happens that nobody messed with at all, they just chose the time that made the most sense for whatever practical reasons. And then it just has like an amazing electional chart, and like Jupiter's like right on the midheaven, and the thing goes off without a hitch. But it it involved no like meddling on the part of an astrologer or something like that. It just naturally went well, and also happened to have a good electional chart or inceptional yeah, chart. And, and those tend to be rooted too. They yeah. like naturally root. That's what I've found. Yeah. Well, it's a sometimes or they're a mixture of like having a good electional chart and also being good transits to the natal charts involved at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, good times. Um, I think we're getting towards the end of this episode. Uh, Kelly, you are in. You just flew from Australia to where? To California. To LA. Yeah. So I just did Sydney, LA. Last night, this morning, I'm not even like Tuesday, the 21st of January, which is our recording day, has been about 36 hours long for me. Um, Because when you fly from Australia back to the States, so I left Sydney at about 11 30 a.m. on Tuesday, but I landed in LA at 6 30 a.m. on Tuesday because you go over the dateline. Yeah. What are you, what the hell are you doing in LA right now? I'm just actually having a couple of days off to do some work, like catch up with you guys and a few other things. And then uh, I go to Palm Springs where I'll be teaching my sold out year ahead retreat this coming weekend. And after that, I'm teaching in New York on Saturday, the 1st of February. So if anybody is listening to this before then and wants to come along to the year ahead uh, planning day in New York on the 1st, the details are on my website. And then February, I'll be online teaching and mentoring starts for me. My group mentoring program starts in February as well. You're restarting that. Uh, and that what's the the group mentoring is like you do mentorship like you would one-on-one but you do it like a closed group of of astrologers yeah we have about 20 astrologers uh and it's a a mix of senior students so students that are quite advanced or uh getting there and newer practitioners and our focus will be chart interpretation skills so if anybody is looking to really pull together their chart interpretation skills it's sort of less structured than a class but we have lots of time to go through some examples and just do some of that deep question and answer stuff that we don't always get when we're you know learning technique okay Brilliant. Uh, where? What's your website again? Oh, kellysastrology.com. Okay, awesome. And I'll put a link to that in the description below this video, as well as uh, on the podcast website for those listening to the audio version. Uh, cool. Well, good luck with that. Uh, Austin, what do you have going on in the coming month? Well, I'm finally going to put my 2020 teaching schedule up on uh, February 1st, the election discussed earlier. Um, and I'm also going to open readings back up so people can book consultations again. Um, and then there is a Mars in air or excuse me, Mars in Scorpio series that I elected that was created, um, during the holidays that will be released by sphere and sundry, uh, <clears throat> on a currently undisclosed date in February. Love it. Brilliant. It's Mars in Scorpio, Undis- right? It's gotta be stealth. Right. Secret sauce. I like that. Uh, and what are the websites again? 
uh, austincopic.com, A-U-S-T-I-N-C-O-P-P-O-C-K.com. And then Sphere and Sundry is, uh, oh, it's sphereplussundry.com, I think. <laughs> no, it's Sphere it and ends. Sundry. It's and the URL. Sorry. And, yeah. Yes, the branding has yeah. a plus. Um, yeah. Sphere and Sundry, S-U-N-D-R-Y.com. Okay, brilliant. Uh, as for myself, let's see, I already plugged the horoscopes. Everybody go to YouTube and read the horoscopes or watch the horoscopes because they're really good, uh, but also I put a lot of work into it. Uh, make sure you subscribe to YouTube. That was a live stream. We experimented with live streaming all of them and it worked really well. So I think I'm going to do that more in the future. Um, I also launched the posters, which I had talked about on our last forecast episodes, but I actually did like get it together and, and get them out. And I've shipped a bunch of them so far. So I'm actually starting to run low on stock. Like I have a few hundred left, but I'll probably not do another print run. So if you're holding off on ordering those, you might want to go ahead and uh, get one here pretty soon because they might not be around uh, permanently. So those are our the same like um, images and illustrations we use in the forecast episodes each month. Um, I've put like a print poster out with those same things, so you can look at the astrology of the next year at a glance, uh, and it's pretty useful. So you can find out more information about that that at theastrologypodcast.com/slash/2020posters. Um, other than that, I mentioned the electional report. Um, I did want to mention people constantly ask us what software we're using, and I use the astrology software program called SolarFire, uh, which is for PCs, for Windows. Um, they've given us a promo code where you can get like a 10% discount on it. So that's AP15 if you purchase the program through the website alib.com. Um, and then the last thing I was kind of excited about is I. Um, some there was like an artist, a painter who tagged us the astrology podcast on Instagram a few weeks ago, and she was um, it's an artist name who goes by the name of Toad, and she was listening to our 2020 year ahead forecast while like painting this like really beautiful painting, and I was really struck by her painting and checked it out and ended up ordering one. So that's like the painting you can see over my shoulder of the moon. It's a Moon Venus conjunction in Libra. And that's actually like the title of the painting. So uh, you can't fully see it here, but maybe I'll put an image up. But I wanted to give a shout out to her because she has some great artwork. You can find her Instagram at artbytoad or go to uh, toadart.co uh, to check it out. Uh, so just as a shout out to one of our listeners who does awesome artwork. If people have stuff like that, I always like to see what people are doing when they listen to the podcast. So tag us on either Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or what have you, and uh, we'd love to see what you're out there doing as you listen to us. Have you guys seen some good tags and things like that lately? Kelly, I know you're on Instagram constantly. I just love Instagram. No. <laughs> I mean, I do enjoy it. It's a good um, look. I do waste a lot of time there, but also I find out some interesting things. Uh, nothing new. I've been following a lot of um, like the bushfire relief support work on Instagram, which has been really interesting. Uh, but I'll check out this Art by Toad. Yeah, Austin, check out. Austin, do you spend much time on the gram? I... I think I've been on the gram like 10 times. Like in your life. Looked at it like 10 times. I I've posted I think 5 times. Right. Um 
It's not real. I might, I mean, I've got an account. I might use it at some point. I, I look at the Twitter sometimes. I like the words. <laughs> the Twitter. Love it. Brilliant. All right, guys. I think that is it. Uh, <laughs> on that note, uh, that is our forecast for February. Uh, so just quickly, a quick shout out to thanks all the patrons who joined us for this live recording of this episode. Uh, we appreciate you. I'd like some of your comments and that helped facilitate some of our discussion here. Um, also, thanks to the producers. So there's a new uh, tier on our page on Patreon, which is the producers tier. So I wanted to give a shout out to some of those producers on that tier, such as uh, patron Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Tana Robinson, and also Marin Altman. Um, also, shout out to the Astrogold Astrology app, which is one of our sponsors, where they have an app that's available for both Android and iPhones, and that's actually the astrology program I use on my mobile device. So you can find out more information about that at astrogold.io. Also, shout out to the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org. And of course, the much uh, talked about Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs that it seems like everybody and their mother has a copy of at this point. Uh, but if you don't have a copy, you can get one at honeycomb.co. And finally, all three of us are going to be speaking at the International Society for Astrological Research uh, Astrology Conference, which is happening in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. Uh, more information about that at esar2020.org. And then uh, also the Northwest Astrological Conference is happening in Seattle from May 21st through the 25th, 2020. More information about that at norwac.net. And you can find out more information about how to become a patron and uh, join us in getting a producer credit or getting early access to new episodes and other bonus content at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me today. It was good to hang out and talk with you again. Let's not wait two months before the next one, but let's maybe let's, do this let's again. Let's do something next month. Let's maybe do that. Late February, <laughs> maybe talk about March. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, great. we'll see what comes up, right? Yeah. Well, we'll be right, probably recording that right in the heart of the Mercury retrograde. I was so just like, we'll see fun. if we oh, can yeah. coordinate our schedules. Awesome. It'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be the, yeah. All right. Brilliant. Well, thank you guys for joining me tonight. Thanks to our audience for listening. Uh, please be sure to like, subscribe, and give us a rating on iTunes. And we'll see you again next month for the astrology of March. Uh, so good luck in February. All right. Take care, Take care everyone.